It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's real? What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the What's Real podcast, episode 126. I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my co-host, my cohort, and my co-tag team championship partner in podcasting, the J himself, Jared Bajoris. What's going on, the J? Oh, your boy, the J, is pumped up this week. Hey, Eel, episode 126, closing out the summer, unfortunately, but everything has a silver lining. Hey, Ed, and we're going into one of our favorite seasons here in the pit and on the What's Real podcast, into the fall, football, wrestling, everything we do here, crazy movies. I am so pumped up that I'm going back to mythology Hey, Ed, Greek mythology, actually, your boy, the J, your co-host, is as pumped this week as the original god Hercules himself. And as we say for the ambiance here on the Dub Bar question, I actually have on here in the What's Real Studios the Rock's version of Hercules. So that's probably why it's in my head. But it's a double pumped upness. Hey, Ed, it's the Rock as Hercules. Let's do it. We have a Herculean show for you guys this week. See what I did there? I did. Uh, totally loaded up with wrestling and movies, as the Jay said, and much more. Uh, we're going to be talking about the brand new A&E biography on Lex Luger, which is going to be pretty interesting. Uh, WWE Rivals had a brand new uh, episode, and I kind of like what they did with this one, WWE versus WCW. And on Thursday Night Prime, we have a, I would say, like a gold standard Thursday Night Prime movie. From 1987, we're going to talk Miami Connection. Of course, we're going to be talking goofs and much, much more. So let's just get into it, the J, shall we? Uh, another another sad note this week to start out the show. Uh, and this is definitely a big one for us, I would say, the J. Uh, but rest in peace to Clue Gulliger, uh, most famously known as Bert. Uh, from Return of the Living Dead. But, I mean, this dude had a career of over 60 years, uh, over 100 films. Uh, he was in a plethora of, you know, westerns, you name it. Uh, he was in Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Uh, and, like I said, just, you know, tons of movies. He's even in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That's what I was going to mention. Don't forget he popped up in Tarantino's Once Upon a Time there. But that was his final uh, definitely, role. Throw that out. Uh, yeah, definitely. My, one of my favorite character actors uh, of all time and a super, super nice guy who I actually had a chance to meet. Uh, but yeah, rest in peace to Clue Gulliger. Pretty sad, even though he was, he, you know, did some living. Uh, he was up there. Uh, but nonetheless, it still sucks when you lose somebody as cool as Clue Gulliger. Oh, of course, man. Just sentiments exactly. And. We always have to say shouting out, as you already mentioned, but the Jay has to too, because it's one of my favorites ever in the horror genre. Of course, the return of the living dead is the great Burt Wilson. And right after that is his uh, credit uh, that same year in 85, a ton of credits pulling up IMDb was uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, of course, is Mr. Walsh. So our beloved genre, and uh, like you said, man, a storied career, a great actor. I unfortunately never had the chance to meet him, but I remember you know you telling me about your experiences, Hale, and uh, he seemed like a great guy. Uh, tons of outpouring stuff on social media uh, with, with the same sentiments as us, with many fans saying how cool of a guy he was and uh, was always open to the fans and things like that. So for sure, sentiments exactly. Sentiments abound, hey, Ed, to the great Clue Gallagher, and I say rest in power, as I do here on the What's Real podcast. 
So I, w- I wanted to mention this because I think it's pretty goddamn funny, but he plays Jesse's dad in Nightmare on Elm Street 2, right? Right. And I don't know how well you remember Nightmare on Elm Street 2, but he's one of my favorite parts of that movie because he's like Jesse's idiot bumbling dad. And like there's really weird shit going on with his idiot bumbling dad. Like the part where like the bird just (laughs) explodes in minute and like just his reaction. He thinks Jesse's on drugs. Like it's just he plays it great. He plays everything straight, but like it's really fucking funny how goofy he is in that movie. And and you know your boy the Jay. I it takes me sometimes for as much as a as we ad nauseum say cinephile and and film nut since I was a kid to being in my forties now and just missing certain details with things because I really like this kind of uh, side film. Because I remember at the time they were starting that kind of green light contest thing. Uh, this was back in 2005 oh, Greenlight. Yeah. yeah his, son, his son, his uh, yeah. son, Gal- what was his son's name? John. John. Yep. John Gulliger, uh, in, uh, the movie feast. And of course, feast Two, And of course he had dad in it as the shotgun toting bartender. Uh, but feast was a cool movie. Uh, you know, when I first saw that, I, I always liked that it stuck out. Hey, that's good. But the sequels, not so much. I don't uh, even see the two sequels terrible. to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. You're lucky because they are not worth seeing whatsoever, but feast is pretty fun i mean it's nothing great but like it's still a fun flick i haven't watched that in a really long time yeah thinking I of it the title last time i seen it. yeah that's one that just hasn't come to mind in a really long time either but uh but obviously rest in peace to clue gulliger uh one of our favorites here on the show uh definitely worth mentioning uh and it sucks but you know how it goes here guys that's just what we do so uh real quick while we're on the topic of movies the J. so i wanted to get your opinion on something uh, but it was a big deal like over the weekend. And this seems to be something that happens more often than not. But I don't think streaming services and movie studios really pay enough attention to it. Uh, but this past weekend, uh, we've been talking about this when it was first originally announced. But Prey was announced or was released over the weekend on Hulu, which is the newest Predator film without Predator in the title. So everybody was watching this like it was a a pretty big deal over the weekend. And I know that we both obviously had a chance to see it. Uh, We haven't talked about it at all, but I was just curious uh, about your thoughts on this one. I'll I'll obviously uh, delineate my time here to you for a minute and then uh, I'll get into my thoughts as well. It's funny because at the outset, I have to say with the current modern world and of course, social media, I did kind of get a little small glimpse into what you thought from what you posted on Twitter. Uh, so, you know, oh, okay. like, like you said, you can expand your feelings, but I'll, yeah. I'll just, I'll just keep it it, you know, to, to kind of put my initial thoughts here that, Hey, Ed was more on the negative side of things. And we, we do agree so much because growing up together, I mean, that's why we got along. Like we have so many mutual interests and even here on the show, you know, we just call it like it is. And there's so many things that uh, we see things in the same light. And every once in a while, obviously things do pop up that we disagree on or have different opinions on. And that's always fun too, of course. I mean, shit, in this day and age in modern America, people, that's what people pay <laughs> to see is, you know, that everybody probably wants to see us fighting uh, as yeah. opposed to agreeing. Uh, but yeah, I thought it was really good, actually. I really enjoyed it. Uh, you know me, I, I have to say, uh, for those listening, your boy, the J has a big interest. I always have since I was a kid, actually, in history class with Native American culture. So like, hey, Ed mentioned when we were first kind of, 
you know, scouring the initial takes of what the next Predator film was going to be, we we saw the plot was possibly going to be surrounding this Native American girl versus the Predator. And, and you know where those things can go. They can go in all kinds of directions. And even if that's their initial plan, it changes all that. But that is exactly what happened. Uh, that's around the film. Is it a perfect film? Of course not. Uh, standing out from the negatives off the bat would be the the CGI. You know, a lot of people were pointing that out. I would have to agree with that with the bear. Uh, one one thing I did like though was the fact that it it the story surrounding it it wasn't deep or anything, but just following I you know me hey I always say I love the hero's journey, and that's kind of was what it was just following the the young Comanche girl and her place in the tribe. And then building it up with with her being the character. And again, I won't divulge my opinion into what I've read on the internet with everybody kind of crying the woke game of, you know, they had to have a, a small girl Indian who beats the Predator and Schwarzenegger and all these pumped up dudes in the 80s struggle to do it. And, you know, all these Marines can't kill it. And these other uh, warriors in the Indian tribe can't do it. And then she kills it and everything. Uh, I guess we should say spoilers too, <laughs> but it is a predator movie. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I there there was a lot. The bottom line is that that I did like about it initially, and I'll I'll throw it at you, Hey Ed, to break down your opinion on it. But I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I didn't really care for this one. Um, it really had nothing to do with a lot of the complaints that I was seeing. Like a lot of people were complaining about, like you know, like the woman being the lead character. I'm. That was probably the most interesting thing to me right. uh, about the movie. Um, I thought that the, the stuff with the Predator was done really poorly. Um, like the look? General, yeah, the, I didn't care for the design of the Predator at gotcha. all. Um, I thought that they spent the majority of the time hiding the Predator when that was just unnecessary. Um, I understand in a way, like, you have to understand first and foremost, okay? So we've seen the Predator series up to this point. The one that we're watching right here is taking place in the 1700s. Okay? So how much of a need to be invincible is he? Right. You, you know what I'm saying? There's no like the people here have no technology whatsoever and like he has to know that. So like just constantly being the camouflage version of, of the predator, the majority that like even during the bear fight scene like Okay, like I get why they did that, but it's lazy. It's that's part of what you're watching this movie for. You know what I'm saying? Like, I understand, like, put it this way if you go and see a superhero movie, and I'm going to use an example of a movie style that I don't even care for. If you go see a superhero movie, right? And the story's great, and the characters are really cool, and the dialogue's really good, and everything's well done. But then every time there's like a fight sequence, it's garbage. You'd be pissed. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they got everything right but this. That's kind of how I felt about this. Like they got the storyline and shit decked out. Like that was fine. But all the money shit with the Predator was terrible. I didn't care for any of it. I was really surprised by this because I was like going into this really wanting to watch it. And I was in the mood for it. And it just I, like I was just waiting for it to kind of get moving and it just never really did it for me. Like, I don't know. It's weird. I guess it's a misstep or something that just did a disconnect for me. But like I've been looking forward to this one for a while because I did think that the storyline and stuff in the 1700s and with the girl and like I thought that was all a really good idea. 
just didn't translate in the movie to me. The movie looks really good, minus the CGI. Like, and that's kind of if you remember uh, just a couple of weeks ago on the the podcast when we talked about. Um, uh fuck why is it eluding me because i'm an idiot right now and i'm already in the witching hour the, <laughs> the witching minutes but uh fucking the edgar wright movie we talked about uh last night in soho on the show last night in soho for crying out loud but like remember when i said about that i'm like the look in the movie was like fantastic and then like once the cgi stuff happened it just ruined it for right. me. right yeah it that always i knew that was always here. an achilles heel to you yeah, it's it just does like in it doesn't do it in everything. Like for example, like this is just one of the things I can think of that isn't like this at all. But like the Mandalorian doesn't bother me at all. It fits. It works with it. It's not that out of place. Because you know what, but, I th- I think in your example of superhero movies was good too. E- even though some of those take place, you know, obviously in 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 cities, you know, uh, Earth, Earth global cities, you know, as opposed to something like Guardians of the Galaxy, which is in space. In comparison to what you're saying with the Mandalorian in the Star Wars universe, is the fact that like even though those are all green screen, the stuff's taking place in these complete fantasy worlds. Yep. And then you take something like this, like you said, this is 1700s America. So you're setting this against this really cool backdrop, like you said, this beautiful film of just these beautiful woods and everything. And then you throw in a, an animal that we're all very familiar with seeing we've seen, in real life yes, we've as CGI. Seen a bear before. Yes, right. absolutely. It doesn't move like that. It doesn't work like that. I see it's, that. Like, that's the problem that I had with it. Like, I mean, and there's some other stuff that they did in this. I like I thought they were trying to build up the tension and stuff like that. It points and it worked. And then I thought they just kind of abandoned that at other points. I'm like, okay, well, that's cool, I guess. Like I you know, it's it's just it was just a misstep to me. It didn't feel like and I mean a predator movie shouldn't re- like I seen people talking about this online saying stuff like this is the second best predator movie ever made. And, sh- and I'm like, dude, this movie doesn't even come close to touching the first two, in my opinion. You could say whatever you want about the other ones. And I would even be willing to say that the, uh, was it Predators? The one with Adrian Brody that came out a few years ago? Yeah. That one was significantly better than this one. I was just watching that because this put me in like a Predator franchise mood, <laughs> you know, because yeah, well, I've watched the original much further. Yeah, we, we did the two. original over the summer on one of our specials for uh, the, the movies that made us yeah. segment. So I had yep. just watched that. But yeah, I started dipping the some of the other ones. But I even I mean, everybody's apparent, uh, you know, opinions vary, of course. I, I saw one in particular, just a random internet person, uh, you know, on Twitter, whatever, social media person. And their very last one in their rankings was Predator 2. And that was one of those ones I remember as a kid, Jesus. not really picking up on yet. But then when I saw that when I was older, man, it's just super violent. You got Danny Glover. I always loved that one. I'd put that one up there. Yeah, people's opinions are all over the place. But I, that was a, a really kind of consensus opinion was a lot of people. And I think that's why you brought that up. Hey, Ed, we're saying that this was like their second favorite in the series. I even saw people say the first one was. And you know me, that's like a <laughs> something that's going to drive me nuts. But, uh, you know, being a big Schwarzenegger head in the 80s, it, it, I'm biased, I'll admit, whatever. Ever. And again, it's your opinion, but yeah, this did create a lot of talk uh, on you know film formats within social media that that I kind of you know most of the stuff I saw didn't get nasty. I, it was interesting to see the varying opinions and a lot of the talk that just this movie prey caused. And I mean, I think it's pretty clear too that there's still some you know legs for the franchise here. Like there's still places they could go with this. I mean, they can kind of go forever if they really wanted to with this type of stuff. Um, 
But, you know, nonetheless, and what I was talking about is like studios should probably pay attention to this kind of stuff because it doesn't seem very often that when movies hit theaters that they get this type of buzz after the fact. But when they're all in streaming formats and most people can watch them, then it they do. Right. So it might be something for them to think about. Like there, it is. There, there's other avenues now to like dealing with theatrical releases than there used to be. Yeah, exactly. And it's just the day and age we're in with the pandemic creating this, you know, kind of formula for certain studios to do the double releases and everything. And and that's what opens up different cans of worms because then it, it kind of it's like about, you know, a balancing act, a double edged sword, however you want to put it, where you know, th- this could be good and bad. It's like, yeah, if you're, if your movie's a complete stinker and you have millions of people literally, you know, globally uh, available to go on their social media and talk shit on it. And it's kind of like everybody's in cohesion with their opinion for the most part. Like they predominantly think it's a piece of shit and shit on it. Obviously that's something that's going to hurt it. Then again, with something like this, I, this was like so mixed reviews from how I saw it that everybody's talking about it. So either way, people might be like, okay, I want to put my opinion on it because a lot of people seem to like it. A lot of people are talking shit on it, but I, I kind of want to see it for myself. And then that helps with viewers too. So I think like with anything, it could go any number of ways, but that's a really good point. AM. Yeah. I mean, I think otherwise a lot of the stuff just comes and goes like they're, they're going to have to start figuring out something when it comes to like what appeals to theater goers. Not just movie people, not people that watch, but like what gets people to the theater. Like, I feel like there's marketable names like Jordan Peele, like Nope did really well at the box office. So like he's clearly somebody as a filmmaker that people are on the same page with. They want to see what he puts out. They want to, you know, that I, I don't even know how big superhero movies are at this point anymore. They're still big. Because I can't. Like they're big, but like there seems like there's a lot of floppy ones in between. Like a lot. Yeah. I mean, before you get to like another big major one that like everybody kind of, like you said, it's like, oh, this, this one's really good. Yeah. It's like so many things. It depends. Cause I know Morbius, the Jared Leto, you know, it's kind of the vampire superhero character that didn't do great. But then, of course, Spider Man, uh, No Way Home, that one crushed. Yeah. That broke the, the pandemic records. And Doctor Strange 2 was right behind it. So yeah, they're still you know dependent on the character. It's it's like so many things. Hey, we say it so much. It depends, right? But but yeah, it really does because Jordan Peele's an anomaly too. You know, he's kind of the exception to the rule because I know with the style he does, it's almost like being a, a modern M Night Shyamalan in a lot of ways, where people want to get to the theater not only to see, to see the next Jordan Peele film in the theater experience. But there's a, an extra motivation to see it before you get hit with all these damn spoilers and everything, because that really ruins the yeah. experience. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's something to be said about making like a movie going experience now. Like, there's not much room for just a regular movie anymore. Exactly. I mean, that kind of sucks, and I don't like it. It is what it is. But it just is what it is now. Like, I mean, there are different, like, see, the thing that sucks too is like years ago, even, and this is weird to kind of see this change, but like, at least where we're from, there used to be a significant amount of like, what you'd call like art house theaters or secondary theaters and stuff or repertory theaters. You know what I mean? That yeah. would show older stuff that would show smaller indie run stuff. Um, and since the pandemic that seemed to really 
fall fall off. They still exist, but they're they're very rare. That that was yes. what we were very fortunate to grow up with was all the the bigger films and blockbusters in in the the multiplexes and everything. And then, like you said, then there was the art house theaters. It was cool to have all those options. And and yeah, now it's just more of a rare thing for for the smaller films and smaller theaters. Although it's cool that uh, a few of them still do exist. You know, there's a handful in Pittsburgh alone. But it makes me wonder what that circuit's like, like right now. You know what I mean? Like, there. put it this way. If it's gotten smaller here, it's probably gotten smaller everywhere, right? So, like, how much smaller now is the art house theater circuit than, say, like five years ago? Because it's probably significant if you're really oh, thinking about it. I would. That's a good word, significantly, for sure. So, like, that, they didn't have a ton to begin with. So now there's significantly less. So there's less financial, you know, feasibility for it. Because like, dude, a, even like a small case indie movie is going to cost you like a hundred grand. You know what I'm saying? Like something with actors. Exactly. And, That's what, what I was going to say. Like, to really get it done with names and everything like that. Really well made. Yeah. And they'd be taking scale to do it. You know what I'm saying? Like it wouldn't be any sort of a major project and that's not what art house movies are supposed to be anyways but it's just there's less of an audience for that sort of thing anyways but you know what i mean whenever there's less locations and theaters for you to actually go see the stuff in the first place then it really begins to cut down on what you could do you know what i mean because we've even seen that happen here in pittsburgh like years ago there was a really consistent run of like midnight movies like horror movies you know like late night theater type shit and then it just stopped and it never picked up again and like every time we went to that stuff it was pretty well attended and everything not all the time but like there was a decent crowd there for most of the stuff yeah all great points but again i just have to say it is still cool that you do still have those in existence at least they're not extinct at this point, yeah, because I could absolutely. rally off, you know, give them give them credit here on the show for what it's worth. You know, I could r- rally off uh, four just here in Pittsburgh. There's the one in Squirrel Hill, which I, I forget the name. I just passed it on on Murray. There's of course the, the Oaks. There's the Hollywood Theater, and then I think the Harris is the one downtown that reopened. So well. See, the Harris is part of Pittsburgh Filmmakers here, and Pittsburgh Filmmakers isn't doing too well financially, so I don't even know if the Harris is open right now. Um, I think the, the... I know there's a Squirrel Hill Theater in the Manor. I don't know which one's open. I know it's not both of them. It's not the Manor. Yeah, the one closer to where that restaurant pull eyes used to be, uh, that one closed down. <laughs> then it's... Okay, so then Squirrel Hill Theater's still open. Uh, the Oaks is still open, but they don't run movies as much. It's they do like events there, like they change the the theater. Like there's a bar there, right? They have comedians, so like they've even kind of changed what they do. Like I know Row House. Yeah, I was going to mention the, the theater in Squirrel Hill. Well, that one's in is that Lawrenceville? Yeah, or I'm sorry, I Lawrenceville. Think, yeah. That's what I meant. Yeah, Row House. So. Cinema. Yeah, so like that one's still going, but like, you know, and they do the repertory shit where they play the older stuff and everything, but like even as far as like the indie stuff goes there, it's not a whole lot. You know what I mean? It's just a lot of older stuff and you know, like come see Back to the Future Saturday or come see fucking, you know, Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, obvious classics. Yeah, but it's, you know, that's what the theater's starting to become, I guess, more of a niche thing. But 
Anyway, we shall move on over into the world of wrestling. Something that we talked about a few weeks ago on the show uh, is just more information has been kind of released on it. And they even put out a commercial for it. But uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Danny Garcia's Seven Bucks teams with Vice, Dark Side of the Ring team for the Territory Wrestling docuseries, Tales from the Territories. Uh, Vice TV is expanding its pro wrestling docuseries offerings with a new show, as I just mentioned. Uh, it's called Tales from the Territory, and we'll delve into the time in wrestling when the industry was divided into smaller territory-based organizations. The new series is scheduled to debut October 4th at 10 p.m. Quote, the wrestling business is filled with nuanced relationships, and there's a phenomenal history that we know fans are going to enjoy, said Brian Gewertz, Senior Vice President of Creative Development for Seven Bucks Productions and former head writer at WWE. In many ways, the wrestling world is a family. They have great moments, tough times, and everything in between. There's a rich history of untold stories, which we can't wait to bring to life. Uh, in the trailer, they actually also show like a roundtable discussion kind of going on. They don't show everybody, but they do show and introduce Abdullah the Butcher and Bret Hart. So it's a pretty good start there with that. Um, as me and the J know, is our, you know, we've been wrestling fans forever and a day at this point. So we're familiar, super familiar with the territories and what happened there. So like this show's definitely interesting to us. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this one. And it's something we'll probably take a look at here on the show, even though we'll be cramming it in sideways in October whenever we're covering the NFL. And and <laughs> horror films. That's our horror month. The, 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 yeah, 31 days. So yeah, Jesus. the What's Roll podcast, bring in the content, brother. We, we'll have the marathon in the, in the fall. A little bit of Pretty much any time the NFL is going on because taking on covering it, which which we both love doing, uh, that takes a huge chunk of the show. But we're not going to give up on our other interests. So it is what it is. But yeah, this, this looks great. I, I think what happened was they, they had a lot of backlash specifically due to the – uh, plane ride from hell episode uh, oh, yeah. in real life. I mean, there was a, a significant amount of backlash for that. And I think they just sat down at vice because this was dark side of the ring was their top rated series ever and, and remained to be. So uh, it's almost like a hypothetical in hindsight. If you, you look at it, if that doesn't happen and there's not that controversy during the third season, then you're probably just looking at a four season of dark side of the ring. But I think due to all that in the fallout from it, they kind of had to reassess things and develop a new plan. And now they're looking to tell overall more positive stories within the, the well, professional wrestling world. Uh, that's not the way the trailer made it seem. Well, like they're I, there to tell you the stories, good, bad, and other. Right. And, so and again, I was going to reference what, what Brian Gerwitz said, which, which you already said, so I won't get into it, but just saying how, you know, the wrestling world is a family. They have great moments, tough times and everything in between. So, but I think it's going to be put, put it this way: go with the dark side of the ring as as a pun, almost a lighter side of the ring. So, uh, just maybe a little a little lighter than the dark side of the ring, but still kind of dark. But you know, th there's a lot they can get out of this. There's a lot of different places they can go. Uh, like you mentioned, there's just a lot of good people behind this, which you always look at when you're previewing something. And you got The Rock. You have his his specific team. You know, his ex wife that he still works with, Danny Garcia, Harry M. Garcia. Gerwitz, but then you also have Dark Side of the Ring co-executive producers and co-creators Evan Hosney and Jason Eisner on this. So, so that's huge too to have all these people working together. I think that's what's going to help put together some really compelling stories from week to week within the old territory days here. Yeah, I think it's going to be good uh, for sure. Uh, I'm definitely going to be looking forward to this. Uh, I'm surprised that we're getting it already, um, but nonetheless, you know, Vice had to do something because if 
if dark side wasn't going to work out for them, they were going to have to change it up and, and change directions and kind of do something because it's clear that there is an audience out there for wrestling shows like this. I think A and E's kind of proven that considering that's something we've been talking about on the show, uh, doing another season of biography and then doing the rivalry show too. Like there's clearly an audience out there for this type of stuff. So they're going to continue to make more of it. That's for sure. Yeah. They go on to say in the reference article, that like we were mentioning that uh, obviously Dark Side of the Ring uh, proved to be incredibly popular for Vice and the show remains Vice's most watched series. So we mentioned that that's a fact here in the reference article though. And of course spawned uh, the spinoffs Dark Side of Football and Dark Side of the 90s, which we weren't big on. So yeah, and there seems like there's been a ton of episodes of the Dark Side of the 90s ones because I'm forever seeing them on. I don't always watch them, but uh, you know, it just seems like there's a ton of them. So, but one more thing here before we go to a commercial break. Uh, last Saturday night, uh, AEW talked or did Battle of the Belts 3. Uh, that was August 6, 2022. So let's take a look at the show. Uh, we had an opener, the TNT Championship match. Uh, Wardlow faced Jay Lethal. Uh, and it was, you know, not a bad match for sure. Wardlow would go on to win. Uh, and then they would attack Wardlow for whatever reason. Uh, and it just doesn't seem like they know what they're doing with Wardlow right now. It's really weird. Like he got that master buildup. And then since then, they kind of like go in ebbs and flows with him. And since they put the belt on him, he literally disappeared until this match. So it, it's been kind of weird what they're doing with him. Well, how funny is it that they compare him to like the modern uh, Goldberg for AEW in a lot of ways and look what happened with Goldberg you know they got to a point with the streak that it hit a certain level that they kind of booked themselves in a corner we talked about with the you know covering the A&E biographies on the WWE and the Goldberg one in particular where it's it's like what are you going to do you, you know what goes up must come down you have to have kind of a backup plan or at least a blueprint on how to book a guy like this. And and like you said, I, I honestly do think they're struggling a little bit. I do still see the Wardlow character getting over. I personally still like him, but you know, we've talked about this in parallel as well to the women's division in AEW with Jade Cargill. You know, it's she's a particular talent where you have this dominant force that they have the look and everything else, but it, it could fizzle out if you don't do it properly. And and you're right, hey Ed, they that's you know what kind of it looked like here. This was still a good match in a good spot. But they have to be very careful how, how they move forward with Wardlow. And, dude, I'll be honest with you. Wardlow is one of those dudes to me that, like, I'm not saying he has to have a match on Dynamite and shit every week, but he should be on TV every week one way or another, whether he's backstage, whether it's a promo, whether it's a video package, something. There should be something with Wardlow on the show pretty much every week at this point because he's still new enough to most casual people uh, that they might not be super familiar with him. So... I mean, you got to have enough video footage of him at this point to be able to put something together. You know what I'm saying? Like, of course, something every week from Wardlow. It, it's common sense. Yeah, but, and if you, you know, it's like anything. You want to kind of build him and push him as one of your top talents, giving him a future main event title run and things like that. Then, yeah, you got to give him his reps. Give him his reps on the mic. I mean, we always say Stone Cold broke his neck pretty much in the yep. prime of his early run, but they kept him on TV. 
And, you know, he wasn't wrestling, but he was doing all this stuff that really built him up, that kept him on TV, that kept him in, in front of the audience. And, and that goes into what you're saying, Hey, that's just a past example, but they definitely need to get him his, his promo reps. And, and I completely agree with what you're saying. They have to keep him doing different things from week to week. He doesn't always have to be bashing people and stuff like that. You definitely want to have that in there, but definitely you know, get him involved in different st stuff, even like do something with Dan Housen and some comedy stuff. Like we're got to start yes. showing his chops. Yep. I totally agree with you there. That's a good call with the Danhausen stuff too, because that would actually work with him. So he's a baby face. Why not? Uh, next up, we had the AEW Women's World Championship match between Thunder Rosa and Jamie Hayter. Uh, Thunder Rosa would go on to retain the title. This match was a fucking mess. Uh, they did do some good stuff, but like overall, this shit was just super clunky. And I know that I've read a lot of stuff from people on Twitter and online about her. But, like, I don't get Jamie Hayter at all. Like, I don't think she's good at all. Um, again, Thunder Rosa's reign continues to be super fucking weird. Um, I just don't know. Like, they don't seem to have any clear direction for her. And it's starting to really fucking show. Yeah, I, I just think that it's one of those things with her size for a woman uh and you know she still is a beautiful woman like she has a good look so that's where it starts usually and then in in ring it just seems like she just has some like you were saying man just some kind of just hard hitting uh, hard hitting style you know and that's what the announcers were saying you know i remember tony shivani saying this is a slugfest guys like you know and, and then adding in like you know i dare you to find any other women hitting this hard because they were hitting it rough but then then again it could kind of turn into sloppy like you were alluding to and and that's the thing she has to definitely tighten up in the ring in my opinion and the other side of it as well mentioning that look and, and her size and stuff for the women's division being definite positives the other side of that too is she has no character to me. Like I'm not into her her promos and character at all. I mean, Thunder Rosa. No, I'm talking about Jamie Hayter. Oh yeah, she dude. She's been. Remember, we were at the very the very first show that we went to for AEW. Uh, that she debuted as a surprise at the end of the night, and nobody right. knew who the fuck she was. Yeah. And since then, it's been like over a year of her just being like one of Brit's lackeys with no personality at all. That's what I'm saying. And Brit. And Britt is a huge personality. Like, they could even build off that, and they're not doing that. So, I, you know, I don't, plus two, and this is a company where this stuff's supposed to matter, but it's like, why the fuck is she even getting a title shot here? Yeah, I yeah, I don't know. I mean, they again, they 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 kind of have been throwing things at the wall where AEW is right now, it seems. Like, they'll, they'll give these stuff, yeah. different shows each week like even the one coming up you know the i forget it's not in front of me like the quake by the lake i think it's called like things like yep. that which i get it i yep. love the creativity i love the promotional side of it but but again that's kind of all it is is just kind of like putting that kind of fresh coat on your typical week-to-week -week product and they have to start getting you know more deep with things especially now like this might be a conversation for another day as we say but with the wwe truly seeming like it is the true triple h era more importantly the non vince hands-on era then that's they, gonna they're give not gonna have somebody they're not gonna have somebody there fucking up everything that they do. Yeah, it's gonna give AEW that much more competition. Triple H does know what he's doing. I'm not saying he's perfect. I'm not, you know, saying everything he does is great, but off the bat, the first few weeks of the non-Vin stuff is really catching my attention. And I'm I'm just hoping that AEW can stick in there. And I'm not saying this this, this is gonna be a repeat of the Monday Night Wars or anything else. You know, I'm not gonna overspeak, but at least 
the tangible, somewhat competition and, and at least keep AEW thriving through all this. Yeah, I mean, like I, I've said this before, too. I want everybody to be good. Exactly. It's pretty simple. I, that, that's like, I mean, we'll get into it because it's a part of our future uh, segment. But with the, the end of the WCW and stuff, we're just like, well, now that's over. Now we don't have WCW. That's great. Yep. It was, and you realized pretty quickly just how bad it was. Yeah, you never so, want a monopoly with something if you can't, if no, you can avoid you, it. You definitely do not. So, and in the main event of the show, uh, this one was really interesting. Uh, Blackpool Combat Clubs, Claudio Castagnoli uh, defended against Konosuke Takashita. Uh, this match was a lot of fun. I like this match um, a lot. Dude, Takashita's really good. Like, I don't know where the hell this dude came out of, but like, He's been in AEW now for, I'd say, like, at least a, a month or two or whatever it's been. And, like, he's been in some really good matches. So, I definitely like this dude. I like what they're doing uh, with, with Claudio at this point. Like, dude's barely been there a minute, and he's already had some really, really good matches. Um, good way to finish off this show, too, because I'll be honest with you, I didn't think anything previously on this show was really that good at all. Um, it could have been a show that I just basically skipped or just like a crappy week of Rampage. But the main event made it worthwhile and made me actually glad that I caught it. Yeah, I agree. That's a good breakdown, Hey Ed, because the main event I was really into. It was really good. It made it worth watching. Uh, the other good thing was it, it didn't drag, though, even with those other matches not being great. It was only an hour long. So yeah. it, it kind of you know wasn't like, like, man, that was just horrible kind of thing is like yeah this stuff wasn't great but it went fast and then at least that's a big thing at least the main event was really good because yeah i'm huge on takashita and you know i just remember one of the announcers saying that he started off in japan when he was 18 he's 25 now so it's one of those guys that has a lot of experience for being super young he has a great look he's great in the ring i think he's just naturally getting over in aew so i don't know yep. the behind the scenes obviously with contracts and the business side of it but Tony Khan's not an idiot too, talking about Triple H. It's like he's seeing this guy get over, and I'm sure if it's possible, he'll look into keeping him uh, in America. Yeah, I mean, it's if it works out, why not? Right. You know what I mean? It's just a, another player there for you. But I wanted to mention this stuff too because it's here uh, in the uh, the article that I'm referencing. But uh, Quake by the Lake on AEW Dynamite this week, dude. This card is fucking loaded. Uh, you got the Lucha Brothers in a Tornado Tag match versus Andrade and Roosh. Uh, a coffin match between Darby Allen and Brody King. Jade Cargill defends uh, the TBS Championship against Madison Rain. The interim AEW World Championship match. John Moxley defends against Lionheart Chris Jericho. So for just a dynamite, that's a pretty loaded up show. I'm looking forward to that. That fucking tag match, that tornado tag match is going to be insane. Loaded. Really looking forward to it. Uh, like I mentioned, it's the Quake by the Lake. That's why they kind of give them these gimmicky names and kind of put together a pretty strong card for a TV show. And as we always say here on the What's Roll podcast, as we record earlier in the week, uh, you guys uh, here in this Friday or after uh, this show would have already went on. So it'll be interesting to see what we think. We'll probably mention uh, next week just our thoughts on it because this is a, a random loaded dynamite, the Quake by the Lake here. I'm looking forward to it. And also, too, before we go to commercial, I wanted to bring this up, too, because this is very important that everybody knows this. But we are on the verge, the Jay, of making our video game debuts, okay? And, of course, the big trailer came out this week. You guys probably missed us in it because we don't show up. We're just in the voice section for this. But AEW's Fight Forever 
is uh, they just started dropping a bunch more videos and clips and stuff like that. But uh, definitely, definitely strong N64 vibes off this stuff, the J. Yeah, that was the whole thing. They went and got the the Ukes original developers. They put Kenny Omega in charge because he loved those games as a kid. You know, has a lot of power in AEW, of course, uh, but it's with THQ Nordic. And for those that don't know, they're kind of behind the the classic games, pro wrestling games of the past that Hey and I grew up on, like No Mercy, like you said, WrestleMania 2000. Uh, it goes on and on. So really cool to see. And uh, what Ed was alluding to, because you didn't really uh, fully explain it there, Hey Ed, we uh, were at AEW the last time that it was in town in April, and Tony Khan came out and had us do some chants specifically for the game. So yeah, us, us and a yeah, bunch he- of our friends will be in Fight Forever doing our best voiceover work. That's right. Tony Khan came up to our section and they were like, Ed and Jared and your friends come with us. We want you to do this thing. And we did. And it was it was amazing. That's how I remember it happening. Yeah. And it's it's scheduled to be released. They didn't put the uh, exact release day out, but it is scheduled to be released in 2022. So as we sit, as we mentioned at the outset of the uh, What's Real podcast here, closing out the summer here here in closing on mid-August. Uh, that's right around the corner. Uh, you know, it's definitely going to be 2022. So we know it's fourth quarter, fourth quarter 2022 is coming up. So I'm assuming it's going to be sometime in the, the mid to late fall, maybe by the holiday season. But AEW Fight Forever, the, again, talk about competition to WWE. We'll, we'll see what, what it does against uh, the WWE style of, of a video game, which was pretty good this year. My, my son still plays it. I dip into it when I can. And, you know, they fit. They, flubbed it two years ago took a year off which is very rare with this stuff that's how bad they did with the 2k20 iteration but the 2k22 was pretty good for wwe but that's what i like about aew they do different things which is what you have to do you can't just be wwe light or try to do what vince in in the history of wwe does you got to stay in your lane and do your own thing and they're doing a completely different uh, style of wrestling game here so i i can't wait for it hey you know that well, dude, AEW does have an advantage in this department as far as making a better video game uh, is licensing. They have the ability to put ROH into a game with a bunch of the guys that you're familiar with from Ring of Honor. Um, New Japan talent, if maybe they they wanted to. Um, other talent from around the world that if they just show, you know, like, oh, let's put a bunch of AAA guys in or something. Like, it's very possible they could do so. And that's something the WWE most likely wouldn't even entertain, even with trips being there. It's not something they would want to do. So right. it's it's interesting to to have that kind of perspective as well. And did you happen to see it's I believe it's from the official because there is an official website for the video game through THQ uh, Nordic. But I have the I, the Wikipedia pulled up of the game of Fight Forever and it lists a shit ton, which I'm not going to bore everybody on the show and name everybody. I mean, it is the entire AEW male roster, huge amount of female wrestlers, tons of on-air personnel, stables and tag teams, the Black Bull Combat Club's on there. Uh, It goes on and on. They even have backstage personnel listed like Ace Steel, BJ Whitmer, Dean Malenko, Jerry Lynn, and Pat Buck. The Khan family's on it. The, The programming includes Dynamite, Rampage, Battle of the Belts, Dark, Elevation, and then, of course, pay-per-view events, All Out, Double or Nothing, Full Gear, and Revolution. Man, this is going to – I think this is going to be good, man. You know, we'll see. It even mentions on here, Sister Promotion, Ring of Honor. So, you know how it is. They they might go all into it. 
Yeah, I mean, just imagine if they went all out and did like old like Ring of Honor like vent, you know, like the, the one that looks like it's in a gym. Yeah, or like you have to unlock another, it or whatever. Yeah, like there's a lot of stuff that they could do with it. And dude, that was always a thing too with those N64 games. Like not only were they loaded with roster and everything, but you had the ability to like add more people, do more stuff. Like you could always add to the game. So like if they give you that ability on top of everything that they're also promising too, this is like one, they might not have to put this out every year. You know what I mean? Like it, they might have the ability that's, to just to put it out every few years. That's how it was back in the day. That's how the THQ games were back in the day. They weren't the 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 Madden formula of every year we have to do this no matter what. It was like, you know, these come out every few years. And I think that's also probably a direction too that they would probably want to go in because yeah. putting putting the game out every year is labor intensive. Um and you can't you can still make, you can't a make ton it that of money much better. Meanwhile, I don't care. Well, and you can always you could always make more money off downloadable content and shit like that that you can sell to people and still make money in between those years where you're not putting out a game. Exactly. We, we've referenced Grand Theft Auto series on the show and because I, I was recently, I mentioned to you off air earlier today, I actually finally beat GTA 5. It only took the day uh, six years or whatever when it first came out. But to your point, that's why that game lasted so long. And some, you know, some fans might complain about it. They want GTA 6. We get that. But nonetheless, they're able to download all these different things nowadays. And, you know, like, like we talked about, we always say the full flow of the show, just like with movies and stuff, things evolve and change for better or worse. And it is what it is. And, and that's where we're at with, with the internet the power of the internet right now and downloadable content but but yeah i mean you know grand theft auto 5 has gone on since the playstation 3 and we're at the playstation 5 you know it came out six years ago so not not like that's going to go to that extent i'm not comparing it to that but to your point this could de definitely be a formula to go at least like say three or four years with this game and then come out with a, a new balls out you know like really good uh next generation iteration which is, I'm sure, what they're probably working on. So yeah. uh, we'll have to see how that breaks down. But there'll be a new one eventually. You know how that goes. But we are up against our very first commercial break. And whenever we come back, we're going to be talking the new A&E biography on former WWE, WWF, WCW, and so on superstar Lex Luger. Very interesting stuff. So stay tuned for that, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. Join us next week for episode 127 of the What's Real podcast. The NFL season begins as HBO's Hard Knocks features the Detroit Lions, and the boys are going to take a look at episode one. Then it's the consistent WWE on A&E coverage as the new season still going strong. First up is the A&E biography on DX, followed by another episode of WWE on A&E Rivals. And on Thursday Night Prime, we go back to 1987 for Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Hi, this is Timothy James with the What's Real Podcast, representing Gooster Goof for the 127th episode of the show. They got to talk about all kinds of crazy stuff, like track meets with junk falling out, crazy-ass nut baseball throws, Whoopi Goldberg farting, and Drake's dad being a cuck asshole. All that and much more on episode 127 of the What's Real Podcast.
What's Real, everybody? It's your boy, The J, from the What's Real podcast. Here throwing out there the opportunity to advertise here on the Dub R question mark. That's right. You, yourself, whatever you're trying to sell on the interwebs or anywhere or anything, we're whores. We'll help you put it out there. Just contact us at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. That's whatsrealpod at gmail.com to advertise on the show of shows, the Pod Upon Pods today, and team up with Hate Y'all, The J, and the wizard behind the boards for some sick 16K advertising. Just hit us up and we'll make a deal. You were my hero. Whoa. And we're back, and it is time to get into the newest A&E biography that they're doing with the WWE. This week's Lex Luger. Uh, Lex Luger is kind of a polarizing figure in the world of professional wrestling. Uh, Dude comes from the world of football, uh, was pushed to the moon pretty early in his career. A lot of people kind of resented him for that. Uh, A lot of guys didn't think he was the best worker. Um, He was potentially involved with the death of Miss Elizabeth. Um, and to this day, he's actually in a wheelchair after suffering a spinal stroke. So his trajectory is all over the place. Um, but they did a really good job with this. I would say this is the best episode of biography this year, except for maybe the angle one, I thought. Um, really interesting stuff. They showed more. This is the most I've ever seen about Lex Luger's football career in anything. Yeah, this was this was really good. Of, of course, and, and we'll get to it um, uh, off the bat here. I'm not going to try to go straight to the end, hey Ed, but uh, just to kind of surmise my inis- initial take, and you'll see my point. It didn't get into his like quote unquote real life stuff because I thought that was going to because again stemming from last week's angle story where we mentioned you know just for those listening that might not be aware how the angle d- doc on this on the A and E didn't have really much wrestling. I mean, it did, of course, but it didn't have anywhere near the amount of wrestling some of the other ones do because his life was, was so, I guess, more important to cover within it. They had just the wrestling stuff. Lex Luger's, on the other hand, was like three quarters was his entire rise in professional wrestling, then his fall in pro wrestling, then the real life stuff. So yeah. that was what was unique about this episode too. It was like, it was wrestling heavy. You know, talk yeah. about his entire career. I mean, that, well, they did show the football stuff, like I said at the beginning. They showed a lot of video, a lot of stuff from that, um, kind of framing him as the guy that we already knew, just kind of like a selfish jerk. Um, yeah, you know me, my my alma mater, Penn State, he turned on him. He went to Penn State and then went to Miami and gave him all Penn State secrets and all that. Yeah, it's just like, dude, there's a large part of Luger's career where he just didn't seem like the best guy. Um, even though he has people vouching for him in this, the guys like Bret Hart and Sting, like with nothing but good stuff to say about him. Um, but they, you know, it, well, the wrestling stuff came pretty quickly because there's not a whole lot of note before that. Like they mentioned everything about his football career, which was just kind of a footnote, so to speak. Like he played in Canada, he played a short stint in the NFL, uh, generally wouldn't stay anywhere too long and would continue to move on. Uh, he was in the USFL during the dying days, which they kind of talk about, you know, glancingly. Uh, and then they move into the wrestling career where he kind of started off in Florida and pretty quickly on 
became a star. Um, and his star would continue to rise, I would say considerably, until he went to Titan. And I say Titan because he was in the World Bodybuilding Federation first before he went to the WWF. Um, but like his star was it, in the early days of WCW, it was doing nothing but rising from the moment he came in, being part of the Horsemen, uh, just even you know being the guy that was supposed to beat Flair. Uh, they did the whole thing with Flair leaving, so they had to change that up. Um, he was kind of at the mercy of being in a second-rate company, which they they basically phrase as saying that like he was positioning himself to go to the WWF at the time. Um, I don't think I think Luger was good enough in the ring back then to go to WWF, but I don't think he had the character stuff at all um, at that point. And we would kind of see that when he'd go to the WWF and. You know, he was good in the narcissist character, but not with promos or anything. It was just more of a gimmick than anything. Uh, and then the, the Made in the USA gimmick was, I think a lot of people liked it at first, and then it quickly wore on everybody, you know, fast. And then it was like, yeah, this dude's, you know, he's a lost cause here. And would probably stay that way until like 96, 97 WCW. Right. Well, not not to backtrack too much. Hey, I just on on my take, like with the beginning stuff, I thought it was pretty cool that you know he seemed it, it, he just that's what they say, man. If you have that kind of natural confidence, it can really take you places. And of course, he has ridiculous genetics and and a ton of other stuff that go into it. Don't get me wrong, but I think that was the driving force was his his self confidence that would eventually turn into just blatant cockiness and and i you know ironic to the gimmick he'd be given in the future narcissism he's a narcissist in, in a lot of ways which was legit but my whole point is it was kind of just like like i mentioned he was in college football and he's like oh, i don't want to be at penn state anymore because he wasn't getting on the field enough so he told joe paterno like if you're not going to play me then let me go and he said all right then you're gone you know so he goes to miami with the secrets and then like you said he kind of bounced around professional football then he's like, I have a coach I have an in with at the USFL, so I'm going to go play in Florida and live the life. That's what he did. Then in the offseason, he gets hooked up with Matsuda and gets trained, and they they were like, you know, he was a ridiculous student. He was one of the first guys that Matsuda kind of put ahead as fast as he did and things like that. He's like a beast. They were showing those workouts. I'm like, dude, Luger's body is just ridiculous. As a bodybuilder fan and a Schwarzenegger fan, it's just crazy to see him in his prime and especially like, you know, we're talking like his up and coming in his like early 20s where like Matsuda's is on him. He's doing pushups, you know, and he's like, it's it was brutal, but I loved it. Yeah. You know, and then and then from there he was like, yeah, I just I made made a career for myself in the off season of football. Like you had mentioned, hey, had the USFL, of course, would fold and, and Luger was looking at that in the rear view anyway into the world of professional wrestling. And his trajectory, as you mentioned, was just meteoric because he just had that look no matter what. And it pissed a lot of guys off. Yep. But here's one thing I took with this, and, and this is a good place to, to state this, that is, is kind of like the surmise overview of, of how Lex Luger is. Throughout all the pundits in this and talking heads and in the varying interviews, everybody says how narcissistic and, and self-indulged that Lex Luger was. But after saying that, they pretty much say, but he had a right to because look at him. But and he was a great guy. Nobody really talks shit on him. Yeah. You know, they, until like the dark days, but you know what I mean? It was like, yeah. like from, from Bret Hart to Kevin Nash, of course, Sting's his best friend, but everybody was like, dude, he was a cool guy. At the end of the day, he was, he was a good guy. He's full of himself, but, but we liked him. Yeah. Like it just, 
it's kind of one of them things too. We all know somebody like this, somebody that's like a jerk, but they're not a jerk to you and you like them exactly. for whatever reason. So it's You're like, like, you yeah. can see how they rub somebody the wrong way, but he's like, it's cool to me. Yeah. It's like, so I don't have that problem with them. You know what I mean? But, uh, then it kind of showed too, because like he would constantly get catered to. You know what I mean? Like he had like a prima donna attitude that somebody was always willing to move heaven and earth to deal with. So, you know, that's the way he learned. So that's obviously the way he's going to continue. And um, and don't forget the pro wrestling industry because Jim Cornette was in this one. Yeah. And he, he said this Luger coming straight out of football that wasn't a fan, didn't know the sport. And that's what created, I think, that animosity towards guys that, that, like lived and breathed the the sport of professional yeah. wrestling, and and this dude just comes in, he's given everything, and he doesn't even know what the hell is going on. Yeah, and I mean, we still see stuff like that to this day. So, I mean, it's never going to change. Whenever a promoter or somebody feels like they got the next big thing, they're going to move mountains to get them. Yeah, in Goldberg there. was like that, of course. Yeah, Brock Lesnar was like that, even though he came from a wrestling background, like never did anything yeah, as far as the pro, actual, just like Angle. Yeah, yeah, same thing. Like you could have. I mean, Angle paid his dues for a good year or so, just doing dark matches and shit. Brock was pretty much put into OVW, but that was his fault. Like remember too, he turned down that lucrative deal at first. Yeah, and like he had to kind of retract for that, but he was given the the kind of rocket right away too. So like, yeah, all these guys are kind of in the same boat here that we're talking about. Yeah, they even almost did it with Mark Henry, but he got injured and shit, so it was a little right. bit different. Good call. Like, people forget Mark Henry started with the company in 1996, so yeah, he was there for a really long time. But, uh, but anyways, you know, with the Luger stuff, he would then go to the WWF, uh, and of course, they even show towards the end of his WCW run, like they need they had the makeshift title uh, that they needed for pay per view because Flair had the actual belt when he took it with him to the WWF. Uh, just kind of showing you at points to just how messy WCW was. So Luger would then go to the WWF, the place they even mentioned in the documentary, where like all the guys are like, you got to go there, you got to go there, you got to go there. So that's what Luger did. He started out, I thought, pretty strongly with the narcissist gimmick. Um, it fit him well. Uh, it fit him and his physique well. Um, and they kind of shit can that pretty quickly for the Made in the USA stuff. Um now, I don't know how much longer Luger would have lasted if they would have just kept him in the narcissist gimmick, but I think it's a fair shake that he would have probably eventually got to be a main main event level heel uh, with that gimmick. What do you think? I don't know how much thought you've put into it or if you, you know, because like think about it, like him versus Bret Hart as him as a heel, like they would have been good matches because Bret well, Hart they, good they st- Yeah, they say, and Lex says himself, he he was definitely more comfortable being a heel. I mean, we we could break that down because that's another really big aspect. And and again, not to backtrack, just to throw some of my comments with with notes, just with where we're at in the chronology of of this doc head, where you you had already mentioned the just terrible idea of Vince McMahon's WBF is what initially brought Luger in, where he kind of just never signed his renewal contract with WCW at that time. So he was allowed to sign a bodybuilding contract because he was like, nobody knew I could bodybuild. And then officially he couldn't sign for like another year. So that's why he was kind of the ambassador for Vince McMahon's bodybuilding idea. And he was on their weekly Saturday morning show, which that came back to me. I'm like, dude, I was so into wrestling. I remember giving that a chance. Same. Remember it was like that goofy ass WBF Saturday shows. Yeah, it was just terrible. Like, what am I watching here? (laughs) You know, so weird. But a big thing I wanted to point out here right before 
his debut and the narcissist gimmick. And of course they cover that in this is a really bad motorcycle accident in June of 92. And that's to the point where he, his career would have been over. He, he even says the nurse when he came in told him he was DOA and he didn't even know what that meant. She's like, you were dead on arrival. You're, you're a miracle. You survived this. And then there was the prospect of amputating his arm. And like Sting gets in there and said Luger's arm and elbow were just open. He's like, there's bones everywhere. And he's like, this dude's going to lose his arm. But incredibly, he had uh, Sting call Dr. James Andrews, who us nerd wrestling fans have known for years is like the top tier surgeon of, of super athletes. And he said, I need Dr. James Andrews. They got uh, Dr. James. And miraculously, Luger recovered from that in six months. And he's wrestling in the WWE, as Hey Ed said as the narcissist and we get to that point of the gimmick and to, to your initial point head from the J I, I, I definitely agree with you. I think he was a better heel because they talk about, he didn't even like being around people that much. Yep. Like he's a nice guy, but again, he's self, you know, just completely involved in himself. He just doesn't want to deal with people. He, he wasn't a common man. They, they bring that up. Like Vince wants him to be his next Hogan, but Hogan loved kids and the, the vitamins and say your prayers and, and even stone cold stone cold was the blue collar redneck. But Luger was not a common person. He's built like a god, you know, and, and he and he acted like that. He didn't want to be around people, so he was a terrible baby face. So they show all this, obviously, after the big slam of Yokozuna on the USS Intrepid, which was a big July 4th thing they did in New York City years ago. It, was, it turned into a big angle on television that they showed nonstop. Um, and this was when he first turned baby face. And it looked like originally it was going to work. Um, it was a big deal. Um, I didn't mind it at the time. I remember thinking, like, I saw what they were trying to do because, like, it's kind of funny they edited it this way. But, you know, whenever he comes down in the helicopter and he starts walking down and, like, you know, goes to slam Yokozuna. So if you're watching this, now they had this thing on the network, and I don't remember if it was on Peacock or not, but they had this section of, like, I don't even know what the hell you would call it, but it was, like, documentaries or something. And one of these things they had was the, this Lex Express raw footage. And it was like a two-hour thing. Oh, I never had, caught that. And it had all this stuff from the Intrepid. And it had a lot of the footage of him on the Lex Express, like going city to city and meeting people and yada, yada, yada. So, And they show a lot of that footage in this, okay? So you see him kind of getting irritated with fans and shit like that, but... The point that I was making is, uh, and it's like this on the original event, but they've probably edited it all for television up to this point. But when that helicopter first comes out of nowhere, you know what everybody's chanting, don't you? Hogan? Yep. Yeah. 100%. Because people didn't expect it. It was completely out of nowhere, which back then the WWF used to do that stuff every once in a while. Like that's how Bret Hart won the title. Like you turn on superstars one Saturday morning and they introduce Brett as the brand new champion. You want to build Saskatoon? Yeah, a live show. <laughs> you're like, what the fuck is happening? Like this is crazy, uh, and that was like another thing like that. Like what the fuck? Like Luger's a baby face now? Like out of nowhere, and he's like the USA guy now. Um, but that's what they that, that's what Vince thought they needed at the time, and they we always said this that it was Vince trying to you know like recover the magic with Hulk Hogan with Luger. Uh, this is one of the first times I really heard them spell it out and admit that uh, on a documentary. Um, that's, dude, that's that's what I was going to mention. Not to interrupt you, but at, at this point, this 
was really cool for somebody that lived through this whole thing, watching it live, you know, as huge WWF fan by, by now here in the mid nineties, the whole Lex express thing. And me, me and you always said to each other, that was one of the first times from being wrestling fans as younger kids of, of this period in the WWF and everything of kind of us falling out because we weren't big on Luger and the Lex express and all that kind of stuff. Like I remember talking to you about that. It was kind of weird at the time, but my, my point is living through it and, and just knowing everything that happened. And then, uh, you know, again, I, I hate bouncing around. We'll get to it, but just to make my point, you know, he ends up in, in WCW, not resigning the contract and kind of dis and Vince and everything we'll get into. But, but the whole thing is right here is you see exactly why everything happened the way it did. They captured that really well. Again, for somebody that thought they knew, seeing him on the Lex Express, seeing how irritable he was this whole time, all the talking heads just you know talking about he wasn't a people person. Of course, the usual Bruce Pritchard's on there. He's like, yeah, I spent the first week with Luger. He was miserable. I'm like, this is not the guy. You know, this is not your next Hogan. And and then of course we'll get into the the where they flub the title matches with him, and then you see why he did what he did and why they just killed his character. He had nowhere else to go. Yeah, it, dude, that was really bad. Like, that's one thing that they talked about on here that I completely always thought and agreed with. So they did the whole Lex Express thing as him campaigning to get a title shot at Yokozuna. And that would eventually happen at SummerSlam 93. Uh, Luger would go on to win that match by disqualification, which in the rules of pro wrestling means you can't win the title. You have to win by pinfall or submission. DQ or countout does not equate to a title change. And that's what they did. They did the the count out. It came off super flat. Yeah, they, they said it was so weird because they acted. They did the exact same thing celebratory wise as if he would have won the belt with balloons coming down. Yep. All the baby faces in the locker room, like Macho Man is down there. The Steiners are picking them up. They're all going nuts. And the crowd's like, he didn't win the belt. <laughs> yeah, the well, and I can understand them doing this for them to have a return match where Yokozuna probably just beats him. Like, I get that, okay? But they never, like, followed up on it. They wouldn't give him the shot again until WrestleMania the next year. Now, one thing that they did not talk about on here, and this is my understanding of all this. So, during the weekend of WrestleMania 10, which is what, what we're talking about, they did this thing where they did the coin flip because Bret Hart and Lex Luger both won the Royal Rumble, quote unquote, at the same time. So they did a coin flip and this is what they were going to do. So if Luger won, he would have a match. I believe it was with Crush. And if, or I'm sorry, if Luger lost, he would have a match with Crush. He would have to face Crush. Yeah. Yes. He won. So they had Bret Hart had to fight Owen. So Luger got the very first title shot against Yokozuna. Mr. Perfect was the special guest referee. Kind of screwed something up. Luger lost. Okay. Yokozuna now has to go on and face Bret Hart at the end of the night. Bret would go on to lose to Owen, putting him, his brother over. And then in the main event against Yokozuna would go on to win the title. Now, my understanding was that Luger had done an interview with somebody. I... I don't remember who it was, but I know it was a newspaper reporter. And it was for the, you know, the weekend of WrestleMania 10, like that they were going to feature that weekend in the newspaper in New York City. And he mentioned something to this guy about becoming world champion. And the plan, from what I understand, was to put the belt on Luger. But after this article came out, Vince was like, nope, not doing that now. 
I don't know if that's necessarily true or not, but that's what I always heard. And they never kind of acknowledged it in this thing whatsoever, even as a rumor. Like, oh, that that was bullshit. I don't know where that came from. Yeah, it, I mean, uh, the only way I would, uh, you know, I'm not corroborating it because I have no idea, but just f- as a super fan from the outside in, there definitely had to be something to it. Because like I said, it really doesn't make sense. Vince wants you as the, the next Hogan. They even show that cool clip that's, that stood out to me in this with him and Vince where Luger was doing like an interview yeah. with, with Vince for TV and like that Luger cool. flubbed. What's that, Hayat? No, I said that was cool. Yeah, it was really cool because you you see Vince is like going all in on him. So he's like trying to comfort him. He's like, man, I flubbed the first line, Vince. He's like, oh, you're fine. He's like, you're the man. It's nothing. You know, like that that was cool. And and that, my point is like that's like kind of setting up where you saw Vince seeing dollar signs and seeing him being his next champ. So for him to not give him the strap on two different occasions back to back there, because even, even Pritchard stated he's like, the, the Lex Express into the SummerSlam match with Yokozuna and what happened there was meant to just prolong the storyline for Luger to get the belt at WrestleMania. So to your point with this story, whether that was true or not, there was something there that happened. You know, maybe it was just the fact that, like Bruce Pritchard said, maybe Bruce Pritchard at the time, he's one of Vince's right hand man. He's going to Vince like he he's just not the guy. And Vince, you know how Vince is, wishy washy, just makes the decision like, you know, we're just going to have perfect screw you at WrestleMania. You're not going to, you're not going to win the championship, but, but definitely something's there. I think Vince's initial plan, my whole point is, was to eventually give Luger the belt and varying things occurred through this situation for, stemming from the Lex Express into SummerSlam and then Mania that, that threw that whole thing off and he changed his plan. Yeah. And they really screwed it up from there because he would go on to do the whole is he a heel thing with Tatanka for a while after this? And Tatanka would end up turning heel. And then in 95, now this is something that I think a lot of people, this is the thing that really was a big tell for me. So in 95 with Luger, they were pretty lost. They didn't really have much direction with him. So what they ended up doing was creating the Allied Powers tag team with him and Davey Boy Smith. And you remember the J just how bad the tag teams were in 95. Like they, they had like the body Donnas, the smoking guns, maybe the Godwins by then. Like it was really pitiful. And the Blue Brothers, which, you, you know, they were the Bruise Brothers, like just shit like that. So Luger and fucking Davy Boy were a tag team in this division. And they never won the belts. They never even came close. That... It's like those are two big stars as a team. That should have immediately been your go-to tag team champions, but they still kept the titles away. Like Luger didn't win a single title his entire that's, run. In the that's WWF. the thing. Yeah, he kept, I think, just not trusting him or something there. There's something to that. Yeah, it was very weird, and they don't really get into it a whole lot in this, but nonetheless, I've always thought that was funny. Uh, and Because if you watch the product at the time and you know about wrestling and you know about all this lore and stuff of Luger, like there's something there that just nobody's looked into or uncovered, but it would have made perfect sense to do something like that with him and Davy Boy, and they just completely avoided the shit out of it. And and that all leads to like I was saying, if you're ready to get to that next step, because yeah. this all makes sense to his frustration in WWE, where all of a sudden, as they say. When he was in WCW and Flair left and it was in a weird place, it just got sold by Crockett and everything, and he's looking at, at the grass is greener WWF, 
Now he sees how the WF is, and it just does not fit him. He's he, he Sting, Sting made another great point to all this, where he's like, "We're in the greater Atlanta area. Like we kind of all lived in Atlanta, Florida, and WCW kind of stuck around in that area. We went to other places, but we can go home. You know, the WWF sent him on a freaking bus for a summer. Like he saw his kids twice, I think he said that summer. Yeah. So yep. you know, and then they do all this stuff that we're talking about with booking. So he basically just keeps telling Bruce Pritchard and Vince McMahon, I'm going to sign, I'm going to sign. And Bruce Pritchard says, you know, if you're going to resign with us by the third time you're saying I'm going to resign, you're not going to sign. Like we're not idiots. And then, uh, you know, because of loopholes and things, Luger wasn't signed. He was able to etch a deal with, with Bischoff and Bischoff sent him a lowball offer because Bischoff did not like Luger at the time, did not really want him back. So he sent him a, a, a offer that would have been insulting. Like he even mentions like, some of the guys at the performance center, like what was it called? The power plant were making close to what I was offering. I'm like $150,000 at first, but he took it because he wanted to get out of there so bad. Sting was, you know, speaking up for him and he just wanted to get back to WCW. Yeah. And don't worry. Luger made up for it. Like in the years after that, where he was right. on a major fucking contract. So, uh, and Luger would go to WCW. I, I did really like how they gave some credence to, him beating Hogan for the belt because that was a huge moment. That's something that we definitely remember from when we watched wrestling, uh, where they build up a nitro, uh, you know, they were building him up on nitro to, to win the title. And he did, he would lose the title just a week later at hog wild, but nonetheless, it was a big moment on nitro. Like when I think of like the handful of like the biggest moments of all time on nitro, that's definitely one of them. Cause I mean, Hogan just flat out taps out, loses, submits to the torture rack. The, the big thing there was as fans of that era and where we were as teenagers, we hated Hogan so bad and not oh. even as a heel. We just knew like he didn't, he wasn't on pay-per-views a lot. He didn't defend the belt a lot. We just wanted him to lose the belt so bad. And we just, and we were used to him just going over. So we we're like, Luger's not winning this. And then when he taps in the torture rack for the championship, we were going nuts. It made it that much better. Yeah. That's one nitro that I specifically remember. Like, I watched twice in the same night because right. that was like summer just to get that reaction again when we were still in high school. So we had the summers off like, man, that's one thing I do talk about this with some other friends, but uh, I don't think we've ever brought it up to Jay. But like, that's something that I definitely missed from back in the day was like you had raw nitro and then you always had the replay on Monday nights of nitro later on. So like when we were younger and shit, like it was perfect because you just stay up all night. Oh, dude, I'll, I'll never forget. That was my college. All kinds of shit. Yeah, yeah my college great. days. I'd watch Raw, then watch the Nitro preview because we didn't have, you know, just to put it all in perspective here on the show, like we didn't have DVR back then. And even though for those listening that don't know, DVRs where you can record live TV and have recordings and stuff. So you couldn't do that kind of stuff. And we wanted to watch both shows. And and, and plus the internet wasn't as big as it was. So you didn't get as spoiled. And, and you know me, I was disciplined with not spoiling myself. I always love surprises. So that was my little Monday night ritual, you know, watching Raw. And then I would watch the the nitro preview, the nitro uh, rerun without being spoiled at all, you know? So it's like freaking almost what, five, six hours of wrestling for a yep. wrestling head. It was the best, best of times. Yeah, that was absolutely a great time to be a fan because of that kind of stuff. So uh, Luger would go on to have a run in WCW that would be up and down. Like he would have good moments. And then towards the end of WCW, it was getting really bad. Um, it was clear that he apparently was having some issues, which they get into on here. Uh, he was dating Miss Elizabeth. Um, they were both married at the time, which I didn't know that stuff. I didn't know either. Yeah. Um, 
And then they basically would get together and do drugs and drink. And it, of course, would lead to Miss Elizabeth passing away from an overdose. Um, Luger was implicated in that by, you know, just by association. That was my understanding well, of it. And selling, yeah, he was he got popped for selling stuff like steroids and other, other drugs. He got arrested for selling drugs. And then DUIs and stuff like that. He would go through a rough time in his life with all that kind of stuff. They even showed his last day. Yeah, in and out of jail. Um, his last match was pathetic. They do show some footage of that. Um, and then he would go on to unfortunately have a spinal stroke um, and end up in a wheelchair. Um, he yeah, What a crazy leave. story that is because I was interested. I, I heard about it. I have his book and I haven't been able to read it yet. And so I've just heard bit, bits and pieces of the story. And I, I remember he was on a podcast and he told the story about being on an airplane and he's kind of talking with his neck cranked backwards like at a weird angle. And the next thing you know, he just kind of crumbled and got rushed to the hospital. And then he would spend the next year in a, in a specialized uh, spinal hospital rehabbing to see if he could walk. And he says in this documentary that they still don't have an explanation for it. Like he's like, you know, there's, there's kind of a, a thought on what happened with his vertebrae. And he says like specific discs and things. But other than that, they never really pinpointed exactly what happened. Like how, how crazy is that? I mean, that, you know, you're going to get to, into somebody that, played football their whole life, you know, high level high school football into college, into the pro leagues, and then was a professional wrestler for 15, 20 years. So, you know, it could be anything kind of thing, but that was still kind of a crazy aspect to me. Hey, Ed, that even to this day, he, you know, here on this dock, he's saying, you know, I just had my neck cranked and, and crumbled and I was paralyzed from the neck down and they couldn't even say exactly specifically why. And he does live independently to this day. He can sort of walk. Like, he uses a walker, things like that. Um, you know, he since found religion. Uh, he since got clean. Um, he seems to have a completely different outlook on life in general. Um, I know a lot of people that have met him at conventions and the sort, and they're like, dude, Luger is, like, the best dude. Like, he's the coolest. Um, so it's nice to kind of see him even though he's had some really bad health problems and stuff like that, maybe get to the point where he could enjoy his wrestling career as opposed to before where he probably wouldn't have been the type of person to do that kind of stuff. Um, the stuff with Miss Elizabeth is really unfortunate, um, but I always kind of looked at it too. I forget somebody says it on there too. She was an adult. She knew what she was doing. Bischoff, because Bischoff yeah. was saying it took him a long time to forgive Lex and he blamed Lex and he does realize that he was, he was wrong. You know, like she made her own decisions and, Lex didn't purposely do that, even even if he did it, you know, without meaning to. It was just their their lifestyle, you know, and and she was in that too. And yeah, that was that was really tough. I mean, you get to these dark places within professional wrestling, and and it gets really hard to watch all this stuff. I mean, he talked about contemplating suicide, and and it really, I mean, you know, it's gut wrenching being older and really picking up on all this and just watching these things and seeing guys that you looked up to, and, and like we said, this godlike real life build of Luger at one point, and then he's telling you this detailed story where his jail cell had this certain setup that he figured if he could climb up the the um, you know like the the jail cell part and just dive backwards it was concrete i'm like oh yep. my god like that was gut-wrenching man and and as tough as that was to get through it really was uplifting the end here you know as you were mentioning like he starts you know me as a gym guy he still goes to the gym and he even like quips like oh the big muscles are gone but i'm still getting in here and he's shown giving advice to this jonathan guy that's a friend of his that he's given advice to and, and everything like that and 
as you were mentioning, as far as conventions go, I forget specifically which guy said it. I don't know if it was Flair, uh, somebody like that, that was like, you would think somebody like Luger, especially with their attitude in the past, with everything that happened to him, would be bitter and miserable. And every time you see him, he's beaming. And they show footage of him like as soon as that's said and he's just smiling. Oh, it's nice to meet you and hugging the guys. And man, that that gives me the feels, man. It's it's definitely a, a gut-wrenching, tough story. It's it's like they say, it's definitely a cautionary tale in a lot of ways. I mean, look at this guy again, this human god, man. I mean, he looks like Schwarzenegger's build in, in his prime, just rips through the pro wrestling industry, fame, fortune, women, the whole thing. And, and then the downfall was so ridiculous like even flair says like i just didn't you know wish he didn't have to go through all this yeah and he's been through a lot and he's still here um and th dude this one's been a long time coming because this was supposed to be yeah uh, we talked about that part of a wwe series I, what was it called on the Unfold? network yeah on the network they were and the network's not been this. around for for how long with the kayak yeah, probably like a couple years at this point at so. least um, but yeah, it finally came out, was on A&E this past weekend. I definitely recommend if you guys have any interest in Lex Luger or professional wrestling, you definitely uh, give it a look. Like I said, besides the angle one, I thought this was the best one of the season. So the second best one of the season so far. Uh, really, really enjoyed this one overall. I'm with you, man. It was it was really good. Like I said, it's you know just such i think that's the thing dude it's such interesting uh, an interesting life it's put together in a really good pa package you're having top tier creators putting this content together it's it's really well done they get all the people they need to be involved with interviews and things like that just tells such a such a good story and again for for fans that have lived through this stuff and watched it on tv as younger kids to be full grown adults now all these years later and see it in this package I mean, this is some of my favorite shit. You know, I love when this stuff's on and, and as gut-wrenching as, as it could be. On the other hand, like I mentioned, it was still uplifting in a lot of ways as well. And like you said, he's still around and, and going strong. Def definitely wouldn't mind meeting Lex Luger if possible one day. Same. So, uh, great story and, and great, great documentary. Absolutely. So that's it for the A&E biography on Lex Luger. Uh, on next week's show, because it is the next uh, available uh episode of bio it's going to be on degeneration x so that'll be interesting as well but we are up against another commercial break and whenever we come back we're going to take a look at wwe rivals wwe versus wcw so stay tuned everybody we'll be back right after this on the what's real podcast this is ed from the what's real podcast urging you to check out the make results not excuses clothing company today in 2017 marcus and jason began their fitness journey and after the first day both men looked at each other and wondered what they got themselves into they were out of shape and struggled to initially find the motivation to keep going it was a fight like many things you want in life, they worked hard and eventually found themselves in the best shape of their lives. When they realized they achieved their goal, Mark looked at Jason and said, make results, not excuses. Being the fearless businessman that Jason was, he said, we need to put that on a shirt. And so the buzz began. They were so passionate about being a part of something positive and making something good out of a bad situation, whether it was fitness, business, health, lifestyle, or converting your daydreams into tangible visions, they didn't just love seeing people wearing it, they loved seeing people live by it. It's a movement, and one that reaches people in all situations. 
Unfortunately, Jason left us too young and Mark is committed to carrying on his legacy. Tomorrow isn't promised and if you wait until the last minute to achieve your goal, the opportunity may not be waiting for you. We promise to support the Make Results Not Excuses community and our community includes everybody. Let's make this happen today. Check us out at MakeResultsNotExcuses.com Again, that's MakeResultsNotExcuses.com So, make results and not excuses, starting now. And we're back, and it is time to get into the latest WWE rivals. This week, it's companies, WWE versus WCW. Um, Of course, again, another retelling of the Monday Night War, uh, which if you've been a fan of wrestling for any considerable amount of time, you've seen countless network special that they did a network series that i believe we covered on here uh whenever we first started doing the podcast about the monday night war there was a dvd slash documentary that they put out that was pretty extensive about it so this is basically the truncated version again we have the round table with freddie prince jr uh this week again we go back to the older uh round table that we had of kofi kingston kevin nash jbl and tamina uh they start this out with the whole uh, Bischoff challenging Vince. Uh, then you get the whole, you know, like, do you want a war? You're going to get one with Scott Hall when he made his his debut. So they're kind of setting the table of what the Monday night was. So uh, Kofi mentions about watching the show, and this is something that we've talked about, where uh, you watch one show live and tape the other one so you didn't miss anything. Or just I flipped. remember doing that. Yeah, like I remember on Monday nights whenever – I had something to do, like usually in the summertime, I would tape raw and then I would come home and I would like try and like stream through raw real quick on tape so I could watch the Nitro replay. So that way I would basically get through both shows in the same night. Yep. Um, But yeah, that's generally the way that that worked out every week. But yeah, I think most fans of that era definitely were 100% on board with that kind of shit. The Jay, I know you'd agree. Dude, because we we mentioned it in our Lex Luger segment when when bringing up WCW and, and Monday Nitro and Raw and, and this sort of thing, and how genius was it? And, and you think it might not be a big deal, but you can see maybe some exec, especially like as big as TBS is and things like that, saying like, no, we, you know, we're not just rerunning it the same night. Like we're not wasting that airtime or something. You know, but like, look how genius it is. Everybody looks back on it as rose colored glasses just to have a replay like late at night of, of Dude, the, the same show that just aired, you know, from eight to I, 11. And I swear on this, and I'm not trying to be goofy or try and make it up shit for the podcast. That's very common now with shows where they like air at nine and they replay at 11 o'clock, like, you know, like Animal Kingdom or something on TNT. Yeah, or of course. Like a lot of. Uh, FX does it, you know, like a lot of shit like that. But like, this is the first thing that I remember actually doing something like that. Can you remember anything else that was significantly like this? No, I really can't. And and again, it stands out with it being professional wrestling too. Cause like I said, I had a whole routine that I look back fondly of in, in college, you know, cause we were, I was a night owl then, you know, <laughs> like we always yeah. mentioned dating ourselves on the show. I'm about to pass out as I'm speaking to you at 622 here in Pittsburgh as we talk. <laughs> but, but yeah, it was so cool just to be up at night. And, and again, you're able to watch raw 
starting at eight o'clock and then, you know, the replay of Nitro is over at like one in the morning or whatever, you know, it's like, you're still watching wrestling. It, it was great. But yeah, to your point, yeah, I don't remember anything like that. That was kind of the first time. Uh, cause, cause again, it's, it's like a double edged thing. Like, you don't, it might be an obvious thing. Like, Oh, let's just replay Nitro again, you know, or it might be like I was talking about where somebody like had that idea and somebody else thinks it's a good idea. And then there's somebody else that's like, that's not a good idea. Like we need that for something else. But, but yeah, they did it. And it was one of the first things I remember having like a repeat, just instant re-recording of it. And it, it really worked. Uh, other than like, I don't know when sports started doing it. Cause there's, there's times where I even get duped because of how many freaking baseball games there are through the, oh, yeah. the summer, you know, where I'm like watching a pirate game. And then all of a sudden after watching it for 45 minutes, I noticed the replay small, yeah, you know, yeah. graphic. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I've done it before, so don't feel too bad, but yeah. Uh, Next, they go into the, how uh, Crockett Promotions became WCW after it was purchased by Ted Turner. Uh, during this time, they, you know, they were fledgling as a company, trying to keep up, but the WWF was the gold standard. Then, in, by '93, WWF was starting to change a little bit too, with the invention of Monday Night Raw. Um, that legitimately changed wrestling. Um, that's an era that we both were watching during that time. Uh, we went from having a primetime show every Monday night uh, that was two hours long, but it was just a bunch of tape matches uh, with some studio stuff with either Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan. They would change to an audience format with Vince McMahon, and then they would do eventually do a roundtable on primetime wrestling until it you know deceased and Raw was created. But Raw was different. Raw was live every Monday night. Uh, it was live from the Manhattan Center when it first started. So, like, there was a lively New York crowd. It was a small crowd, which was also different for the WWF at the time. But, but it was, was, was kind of it was kind of better, and it was intimate. Yes, like it yeah, because of the intimacy. It, it was a ruckus, smaller crowd. It was interesting, and just having the live matches and stuff on TV every Monday night, it just felt different. Um, everything was not a jobber match. They actually had matches on here that were competitive matches. Um, they would run interesting storylines. It quickly became the place where not all the angles were done, but the major ones were done. And it was, it started in 1993 and for several years there, it was appointment TV every Monday night. Um, I would say until the Monday Night War got started, like 95 was the, the first year I thought where Raw was kind of losing steam. But like 93 and all the way through 94, Raw was like a can't miss thing every Monday night, no matter what. Was it uncensored, uncooked? Uncooked. <laughs> and, nah. and they had that dude that we always reference because he had that brief run. But we we remember anybody that dips in and out of like, WWE or WCW and even ECW, you know, even just like these small role guys. It was like the, that Rob Black or what was his name? Not Rob Black. Rob Bartlett. Ron Bartlett. <laughs> yeah. Rob Bartlett. They like brought him on like initially because of course, you know, your boy, the J. I, I always bring up my pervert side with uh, Luna Vachon feuding with Sherry and Sherry's oh, yeah. shirt gets opened up. You know, you're the freaking teenager and like Bart, like Bartlett was in the middle of that. 
but yeah, that, I mean, that, this, that brings back so many memories as you grew up, you know, coming in and out of my house as, as one of my best friends with the addition room of the house I grew up in, we called the new room and I would be in there with all the lights off watching raw. You know, I still remember those days, you know, being a grown ass man, as we always reference now, it's just, uh, brings me back, man. It says rose colored glasses, but yeah, at that point it was you could see the the evolution of of uh, professional wrestling specifically the wwf at that time with raw and, and it was pretty much all all going on right in front of your eyes like this this change of product you know just just like i said with the aforementioned girls fighting in their bra opened up like from from the cartoony stuff of the past that was like it's opening up a completely different era yeah, and they were always real big. Like, it was a constant saying on WWF television back in the day, like, anything could happen in the WWF. They took that really seriously starting in the Raw era, though. Exactly. Um, they they tried to do things that were just out of left field and things that caught you off guard or things that seemed a little bit uncommon. The element of surprise got yeah, exactly. synonymous with pro wrestling in those years. You know, to this to this day where it comes back and it brings that nostalgia back. And that's why we, like, we love the AEW and WWE being, uh, you know, somewhat of competition, at least having guys jump back and forth. That brings this back because it hadn't happened in 20 years with uh, the WWE monopoly of two decades like we've been referencing. You know, it's just it's just such a cool part of pro wrestling that we were missing out on. And it all started here in this in this era. And this is also the same era of the WWF where they were starting to go away from Hulk Hogan and a lot of the guys that were there for the, you know, yep. pretty Probably much starting the to go younger. of the 80s. And what happened eventually was this is when Hogan would leave. He was there for the very early, you know, first year of, of Raw. He was involved in some stuff and then gone by maybe six months. It was just like um, Flair because Flair had that classic uh, yes, loser leaves match perfect. with perfect. Yeah. Yep. So they got those guys out of there during the era of Raw, and then it would proceed to move on. So during this time period, Hogan left the wrestling business completely and, and was doing the Thunder in Paradise TV show, which I used to watch pretty regularly, which is hilarious. <laughs> um, but where he was uh, filming this was right next door to the Disney MGM Studios where WCW was filming shows at the time. Uh, once they found this stuff out, um, they basically would, you know, go to the studio and try and convince Hogan to come in. Um, and it wasn't working for a while, but then eventually Hogan started to listen because, you know, we always mention this. Hogan is a business guy and uh, he was all about the business. So that's pretty quickly what he wanted to do was see what kind of money was available. Of course. And but that that did usher in the new era because hand in hand you know, was Savage and, and all those kind of guys. And then you have the mainstay WCW dudes that, that were big in WCW mesh, meshing with them. Of course, Sting being the, the biggest one. So, you know, that's that's where wrestling starts. We talk about that as, of course, the roster. So WCW is developing this this new kind of fresh roster to, to you know, preamble into creating Monday Nitro. And then, then of course, they, they talk about Ted Turner and, and him getting in control at this time. And they even have some clips of him through this where he's saying, I want to go head to head with Vince. And he's like, you know, if, you, if you're going to go head to head, you know, if you're going to have competition, you, you got to go to the fight. You know, you got to pick a fight. And Bruce Fitt Pritchard, of course, is, is again in this and felt like they were crazy. Like, why, why not pick a different night where you can get more of a wrestling audience? It's a, a niche audience. But it was, like Stephanie McMahon says, it was an act of war. And there you go. In, in 95, the birth of the Monday Night Wars, pretty much, with the announcement of Monday Nitro going head-to-head -head with Raw. 
And they would do it from the Mall of America, uh, which was the biggest mall in the country. Um, it also aired unopposed because back then Raw used to get preempted for shit like tennis and the dog show. <laughs> yeah, um, we used to be so, so pissed at that dog yeah, show, man. <laughs> it'd be like, and I like, I will actually watch the dog show now. Like I get a kick out of it. But like when I was a kid, it was like, ah, oh, the fucking dog show. And then the other was Wimbledon, like a fucking Wimbledon. Yeah, those like dogs, the tennis. Westminster dog show and Wimbledon. Yep. Like anytime that shit was on, Raw would get preempted. And it's like, ah, oh, Damn it. You know, and that was a big deal, especially if it was during the time of year when there was no football either. So it's like on Monday nights when you're a kid, there was nothing on. Then. Just to throw this out, out there, Kevin was saying the same thing because here we sit, as we've been mentioning in August, and, you know, other than baseball going, like as far as big time sports fans, there's not too much going on. And my brother in law was, you know, shout out to Kevin and was with our good friend Gus, shout out to the goo. And they went to our friends. One more shout out, guys, to uh, sponsor the show, Dads, and it's a sports bar. And he said they had on cornhole and like horse racing. And <laughs> <laughs> I was dying. It's like there got to be a baseball game on somewhere. Yeah, like, like Katie, my what wife said, like, you know, we were talking with her. She's like, they could have just put on like a, a replay football game or baseball game at least. But of course. Uh, after Hulk Hogan joined WCW, it started. Uh, they, see, this is something that I don't like. They act like Hulk Hogan started all this, and he really didn't. Because I was watching WCW regularly at the time. It started with me, Gene Okerlund, then Bobby Heenan, then Hogan, then Savage. Then they started bringing in fucking everybody under the sun. Um, but they would get a lot of the more familiar superstars of the casual fan of people that might have watched wrestling years before. That's exactly the point. Hey, Ed, they, they might be getting older and things like that. And again, there's different forms of fans. And for us diehard fans that want to see good matches and we know about the athleticism of like big boss man passes prime and things. But to your point, that's why they're doing that. Obviously, they're they're name people, you know, especially for like the mass media appeal kind of thing. And, dude, I remember this era pretty well. And, dude, it's something just didn't sit right with me here. And I'll tell you the way it was for me. So I grew up mainly as a fan of the WWF. I watched Crockett. I watched WCW. I watched a lot of other stuff, too. Um, and at this time, I actually liked WCW. They had guys like Sting and Vader and Flair and, like, Dustin Rhodes. Like, they had a lot of really good matches. And, and I just liked what their product was. But I also liked the WWF and what it was. But then when Hogan and Savage and stuff showed up, it kind of pissed me off. And I'll tell you why. Because I liked those guys in the WWF. And now they're in WCW and they're kind of taking the place of guys that I liked in WCW. So it was like if they were still in the WWF, I could enjoy them and I could still watch WCW and enjoy it for that. And, but with and their presentation here, was off. When, yeah. Yes. So, sorry to cut you off. But yeah, their presentation was off because... You're, you're so used to Hogan's music as such. It's all the little details, you know, it's both of their musics, like Macho Man's music and, and Hogan's and their presentation, their entrances and just being such huge fans of them as, as kids and stuff. It just wasn't the same. You know, I think that's the big thing. Yes. And then on WWF programming, you still had guys that you liked, but there was clearly a void of talent for a while. Like they had a lot of guys on TV that like in previous eras would have never made television. Um, so like both companies were kind of in flux and it was a weird time to be a wrestling fan because you're just watching this stuff every week and you're like, everything just feels somewhat off. Uh, of course, both products had things that were both really good, but they also both had stuff that was really bad. And, you know, even with, you know, this is pre Monday Night Wars era, 
But when the Monday Night Wars first started, the companies were both kind of still in that flux in 95. Um, but it was weird that they were starting to be more defined. But like, even when you go back and watch them, these shows aren't very good. Either one that, of them. That's exactly what I was going to say. So going to the inaugural very first Nitro at the Mall of America, like you referenced, hey, Ed, and, and we mentioned it in the flow of the show. And that's probably why they did this too. It's like parallel kind of stories with the Luger documentary kind of going into this because Luger's big moment that we talked about in his documentary of dipping out on Vince McMahon's contract, never signing it, loopholing into a contract with Bischoff legally and everything, and nobody knowing. He said that that's what Bischoff realized was people loving the surprise. So they like flew uh, Luger in like at a specific time. They had him covered up with like cloths and stuff. So nobody would see him or know for this big moment. So that was huge. And that started all of it. But again, in contrast to your point of this time, if you look at the footage here, who was in the ring, it's like Mang and Hogan's fighting with like Kamala. Yeah, it was weird. It was weird. But it was, they were still trying to go with the old school thing of like, it's special to see Hogan. So it didn't really matter the match. It just, it actually was him and Big Bubba had the match. That was the main event, yeah. which is former boss man. But they were just trying to get Hogan on television at the time. And then it, whenever you watch all this stuff and how it breaks down, they do the thing of like Luger comes out at the end to help Hogan beat up the heels. Then they do that thing where they back into each other and, and they like, you know, face off. And Luger's whole shtick of like, you know, like, hey, brother, I'm happy to help you. But like, I want your belt. Like, that's not the way they should have did this. They didn't understand. Like, they're just hot shotting stuff. And right. that, but the one thing that they did learn from this is that it mattered when things happened live. And then they quickly realized, too, that they would have a bigger advantage because they had control of the television network because the owner of their company could tell the networks, which he owned at the time, to put WCW on. And they used this stuff to their advantage. So they decided to go live every week where WWE was or WWF at the time would be taped every so often. Um, and then they would start going on the air during the weeks that Raw was taped and start giving away the results of the show. And this is something that the WWF, you know, they kind of call this like dirty pool, so to speak. But they did stuff like this in different ways. WWE was plenty petty in the 80s. when it Yeah, that's what's, you know, pot kettle kind of shit for sure. Of course. They show, of course, Alundra Blaze coming in one week and throwing the WWF Women's Championship in the garbage, which oddly enough was the most famous thing that ever happened with that title. Let's just be perfectly honest with you because it had a weird run in like mid to late 95 WWF disappeared. She left the company with the title and then it was like unheard of again. Nobody really clamored for the WWF 1995 women's division. Um, so when she went on Raw or went on Nitro and, and threw the title in, in the garbage, it was a big deal and probably the biggest moment that title was ever actually involved in. Right. Yeah. And, and that's that's what creates the back and forth pettiness. And like you said, it goes both ways. But WCW was de definitely taking the pot shots first because they were always considered the lesser you know, of the two. So the, the one quote here in the reference article is great where Bischoff said on Nitro, in case you were tempted to grab the remote control, check out the competition. Don't bother. Shawn Michaels beat the big guy with a super kick he couldn't earn a green belt with at the local YMCA. <laughs> so yeah, he's 
he always there was always like the jabs too. It yeah. wasn't just giving out the results. It would be like you know, like the the famous Tony Schiavone call of like, oh, don't turn on Raw tonight because uh, Mick Foley's winning the title. That'll sure pour, put butts in the seats. And then their fucking ratings plummeted because everybody turned over to see Mick Foley win the WWF championship. <laughs> yeah, and, and so, Bischoff was on this saying that was definitely a big mistake in hindsight, of course. Yes, they didn't do it right. Like, it's the kind of thing where they should have did it. Like, in the weeks where Raw looked shitty, yeah, they definitely should have did it. But, uh, like, when major stuff was happening, they probably should have steered you away from it uh, and not <laughs> yeah. brought it up at all. You know what I mean? Like, there's yeah, a right and then, way like, and a wrong way. And, and this is where I was saying the WWF started some of their stuff where, of course, they did the infamous skits of, you know, just bad versions now, of Macho Man and Hogan as old wrestlers and Ted The Turner. billionaire Ted skits. Yeah, yes. and, and and like DDP said, it wasn't a smart move because it turned off old WWF fans that still like them. And, and that's where we're at today. I'm not going to diatribe into it, but like we always say there's these – wrestling war goose that stick to a brand it's like like you were saying earlier hey we want everybody to prosper we're just wrestling fans we love wrestling it's great to have tons of options and just tons of good wrestling that's the the more good wrestling the better for us fans but some people are the way they are they pick sides that's what kind of goes on you know ted turner's on here in old footage saying he wasn't even hurt by it and he he actually was like oh this means i'm getting the vince you know so it is actually one of those things again that backfired that that one for wwf and, and then this is when we were talking about hey ed because you know shouting out pittsburgh as we have to do when it's brought up being two pittsburgh boys where triple h remembers working a half full building in pittsburgh and austin kind of just being there from ecw and stuff and just saying man are we ever going to be as big again as it was in the 80s you know like we're, we're yeah, still at that point with both companies where like you were mentioning earlier they're kind of just in these weird spots right now with everything the business was down in the mid nineties. It was exactly. the lean years for yep. sure. Um, and that's kind of weird too. Cause like, dude, we've even talked about this just a little bit off air, but we used to go to shows all the time back then. And like, I don't remember going to the arena too often. And it was like fucking completely empty. No, like, not half full. No, like I'm not saying it would be sold out hanging from the rafters. Right. Like you could get tickets, but you know, during the attitude era, it would definitely be sold out for house shows and everything ahead of time. So uh, it was a little bit different, obviously, but like they're acting like there's 50 people at the, at the Civic Arena and there definitely was thousands. So, uh, but, you know, it also, too, it was weird. You mentioned the Billionaire Ted stuff, the Jay. Uh, that stuff was actually kind of jarring at the time because that was the first time that they were acknowledging WCW on television. They had never done that up to that point. Yeah, they kind of forced their hand into it once they really started these tactics because Pritchard mentions that. He's like, the competition doesn't exist. We never mentioned them. But it would be very commonplace for WCW to do that, even when Jim Ross was there, kind of like he would take pot shots at the... The, the northern wrestling, that's that's what they call it anyway, wrestling. But I don't know much wrestling those guys can do, like that kind of stuff. Um, but WWE, this is the first time the WWF and Vince McMahon's company were acknowledging any sort of competition. Um, but, you know, yeah, it, it ended up probably being kind of crappy business uh, for them. And then it would go on the run where WCW would beat WWF for 83 consecutive weeks in the ratings during this war. Uh, primarily through the creation of the NWO. Uh, whenever Scott Hall made his appearance on on Raw or on Nitro and said, like, you know, you want to go to war, then a week later, Kevin Nash showed up, uh, and then eventually Hogan becoming the third man. We remember that time period very vividly, and 
it felt different for the first time in our lives watching wrestling where it was like WCW has something here with this. It's really like it's all people were talking about. And that's even back then when even the internet was kind of in its infancy. As that's far what I was going to say. It's pretty prominent goes. internet, so but, we weren't sure. But what I was going to say, but even back then, I remember the internet was popping off about the NWO. So oh, it's like course, that yeah. was kind of the beginning of the, like where the internet era began, probably. Yeah, especially speculation over who the third man was. Yes. I vividly, like, I'm sure you remember as much as I do at the time. Like, it was going to be Mabel at one point, and then Yokozuna. It was all former WWF guys, and then it ended up being Hogan. And the, which, the real behind the scenes, according to Bischoff, Hogan, all them, like, it was more than one person corroborated the story, was it was looking like it was going to be Sting. Turn. Yes, and Hogan kind of even hijacked that because... They didn't really get into this in this documentary, but Hogan was faltering big time. Yep. Uh, whenever he first went to WCW, he got a good reaction. Uh, but then quickly they would go into other cities where he wouldn't get a good reaction. Like Hogan was never going to get a good reaction in Charlotte uh, facing Flair, you know, stuff like that. So and they kind of teased this a year before where they were doing all black Hogan. Like it wasn't NWO related, but he would come out all in black with the the mustache, you know, shaved and or uh, dyed or whatever, and it didn't really get over. But then putting him with Hall and Nash because this is something we could vouch for at the time. Whenever this happened, Hall and Nash were super cool. Like just wrestling fans viewed them as like the cool guys. So when they went to WCW. They got something that I don't even know if they realized that they bought. Like, they just got these two guys under contract to wrestle for them. But they also were able to bring their kind of cool factor to WCW. The way they debuted them made them even cooler. And then, oddly enough, the guy that's getting booed when he's a babyface is now a mega-heated heel with these guys. But then there's a lot of other people that kind of like him because he's associated with the NWO. It was something new, something different in the world of professional wrestling that fans really hadn't seen anything like that before. And it just completely captivated wrestling audiences and took a lot away from the WWF watching every Monday night. Yeah, because at that point, people really are buying into WCW and WWF working together, too. Yeah. You know, nobody knew there was that. That's that's what they always say. That's the, those blurry lines. You know, it's like we always use the example. We just got to shout it out here. With somebody like Chris Angel, you know, the uh, uh, magician, where it's like, you know, he's not a wizard, you know, it's not real magic, but he's still a multimillionaire doing freaking magic shows because you don't know the exact way, you know, why, how he's doing it. And, and that's kind of like the height of pro wrestling. And like, like we even will shout out because we're so hardened fans and the way the product is nowadays, it's much more rare. But that's what's great about pro wrestling. There's still times, and I'll, I'll typically shout it out to you, hey, I'd like, dude, they actually got me here. You know, like I didn't yeah. know exactly what was going on. And that's when wrestling's the best. And and that's what this is introducing, like you said, for the first time for fans of, of our stature is these blurred lines where we don't know, you know, what's coming next. And and again, it goes back to that element of surprise. And then of course it goes over to the WWF side where they had to try and figure out something. Uh and what they figured out would be known as the attitude era. What the attitude era basically is is they kind of took a little bit from what ECW was doing um, with their type of characters in the WWF um, and added language and subject matter that wouldn't really be typical of WWF programming up to that point. Now, 
this would go on for a while. And I think that they nailed this. And I, I think it's it's absolutely the minute that this changed was when around WrestleMania 14, they decided to bring in Mike Tyson. And Mike Tyson would occasionally be on television doing angles and stuff with Stone Cold or DX and everything, leading up to him being the special guest enforcer of the main event at WrestleMania 14 between Stone Cold Steve Austin and Shawn Michaels. Mike Tyson was the biggest pay-per-view draw in the world at that time. That's definitely true. Um, they brought him into the fold. It really helped boost the ratings. A lot of people got WrestleMania 14 because of his involvement. And it started getting people into the product. And at the time, it just so happened that the WWF had something that was rising a little after the NWO started. But its heights would go way beyond the NWO. And of course, I'm talking about Stone Cold Steve Austin. So you had the Austin, uh, you know, rise. They brought in Mike Tyson. You also had the end of an era with Shawn Michaels being kind of injured and, you know, still was able to put on fantastic matches at the time. And it also created, uh, you know, DX with Shawn Michaels, which would go on to be kind of different once Michaels would step away after this WrestleMania. But this was the beginning of when the WWF was starting to seize power back again, and they would eventually do it for good to the point where Vince would eventually buy WCW. Yeah, that's why this was a great moment in the documentary with Bischoff because you got to shout out. He's always good on these things, of course. And he mentions how like even with them switching, going into this attitude era, going edgier, that he wasn't too concerned. But then Mike Tyson shows up and he says he's like that, that, that one stung. He's like, uh, he can admit that this is Mike Tyson, you know, still pretty much in his prime. And, uh, you know, especially as far as that, like we always mention, that's what you need. That's what the bucks are in the ratings, especially at these times, that mass media appeal and, and them bringing in Tyson had even Bischoff pretty concerned. And with the rise of Stone Cold Steve Austin, WCW kind of scrambled to figure out what they can have an answer to in that regard. Uh, because the NWO was also kind of faltering a little bit too. People weren't as interested in it as they once were. This at this point is like a three-year period of the NWO not really having an endpoint, And pretty much everybody in the company at one point being in the actual NWO. It made it so that WCW was not the cool thing. Uh, so what their answer was ended up being a guy named Bill Goldberg. We all know him as Goldberg now. This was the original run, which was his biggest influx and biggest appeal and biggest influence on the wrestling business, period. Um, it wouldn't make WCW, of course, win the war, but it certainly kept them in the game a little bit longer. I would say like maybe two years longer because there would be that back and forth where you know maybe people didn't really care about WCW, but they definitely cared about Goldberg. And you know, not everybody liked Stone Cold. You know, there was the something for everybody kind of factor. And plus two, and this is I think what got a lot of us. Goldberg had power that we really had never seen before. Like this dude was doing shit that nobody else could really do power-wise. So it was impressive to us as long-term wrestling fans and something that we kind of were like, wait a minute, what's this dude doing? So it got uh, our attention as well. Those that listen to the What's Real podcast regularly know it's the Jay's pump upness. You know, it's part of the show. Love being pumped up. Love pumped up things. Things that pump me up. And Goldberg in his prime. Oh, that <laughs> that says it all, man. He's blowing the smoke out. The music coming out to, with the cops around him. He did that well way before the UFC. Things like that. It, it was just such a spectacle. And he was definitely you know a huge part in keeping WCW afloat through all this. With the like you were saying, the fading NWO. 
And, and I have to shout out here, hey, do you remember, uh, I know you do, the tape, I think Squid had it or, or maybe even Damien, you know, two of our close friends, that it was just the Goldberg tape at the time. Yeah. Yep. It was just WCW one somebody video. got. But we, we watched that a million times because it was just such a cool package because it's such an easy watch because his matches aren't long. So even though we loved like the cruiserweights and like all the beautiful wrestling of the time, it's just kind of something different when you're in the mood for, again, the pumped upness. And like you were saying, just somebody so strong just destroying people. You know, and this this all leads to like when Goldberg was prominent, you know, DX is there. Michaels kind of leaves. It's kind of a different form of DX. But you had like DX and all the WWF at the time acts. And of course, like everybody has to keep going back to the Rock and Stone Cold coming up in their primes, the, the, the height of McMahon versus Austin and everything else with Goldberg. And, you know, we always give our shout outs on the show. So shout out to the reference article because he makes such a great point. And it kind of encompasses everything like I feel about this period. Robert Lady Jr. Uh, for 411 Mania. Uh, shouting you out, bro. Uh, but he had a great point here where he talks about this this time. And, and it goes into what we were saying earlier, hey, Ed, about certain fans, even in today's product, fighting on Twitter over who's better and, you know, all that stupid shit. And like we say, it's like better for the fans. He mentions that at the height of this and the Monday Night Wars, it goes all into this. Both shows were doing monster numbers and the fans were the real winners while the boys were making tons of money. Wrestling was at its hottest period and was part of pop culture and it's good for everybody. You know, the wrestlers are making tons of money, the promoters, you know, even if you, you know, fuck corporations, but even the 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 corporations put on the shows and, and most importantly us fans, because again, we look at, at this stuff as just stuff going on in the prime of our lives. And especially as consistent wrestling nerds, this was some of the best times of our lives. And dude, it this stuff would start to change too because of this. Uh Eventually, a lot of these guys that we've been talking about with the NWO and Hogan and stuff would kind of keep their stranglehold on their spots. So it would cause a lot of the up-and-coming guys to want out. Uh, X-Pac was one of the first guys to jump uh, whenever he decided you know, he just wasn't getting along with Bischoff, would leave and would go to be there as one of the newest members of DX after Shawn Michaels was gone. Then they built this up massively, but Chris Jericho would jump. Uh, you also had the point where the Radicals, which was the team of Chris Benoit, Eddie Guerrero, uh, Saturn, and Dean Malenko all left WCW at one time and joined the WWF. So guys were starting to see that the grass was greener on the other side, and the WWF was hitting a boom period. So they were making a ton of money that guys in WCW weren't really seeing at the time. Uh, from that time period, we'd seen the dying days of WCW where it would eventually be bought up by AO the AOL and the Time Warner merger, and it would eventually get put up for sale, which Vince McMahon would purchase. Vince would eventually show up along with Shane on the very last episode of Monday Nitro, which is a very weird experience that night, watching Raw and flipping over to Nitro and realizing it was a simulcast uh, between the companies. And WCW Nitro would end quickly thereafter. WWE won the war, so to speak, and this was on March 26, 2001 with the final Nitro. Uh, they went and had a full card that was actually booked and operated and ran by the WWF. Um, it's pretty weird. A lot of guys went to WWF uh, as part of the invasion angle, but you saw a lot of guys who didn't. Uh, guys like Hogan, Flair, Sting, a lot of the NWO guys, Rey Mysterio, um, a lot of the major stars. Like We got Booker T brought in as a major star from WCW. Um, and he just forgone what left he had on a contract to go there and work, which worked out pretty good for him. 
Um, but it would ultimately, re you know, result in a lot of these guys being brought in at a later time down the road. And of course, everybody knows that the WWF and Vince McMahon flubbed the whole invasion angle with WCW and ECW. But that was essentially the end of the Monday Night Wars and the end of WWE versus WCW. Um, you know, the Rivals thing was good. It was a nice quick rundown of everything. But, you know, as you know, the Jay, we lived through this whole era. So it wasn't anything really new for us. It was just kind of like a quick, easy stroll down memory lane. That's exactly what it is. I, I mentioned it. Uh, it's not many better ways to put it. And I myself put it like this. So I'll just reiterate. It's it's basically like a, a magazine, you know, television show. You know, it's like a magazine visual show. Uh, which which I'm saying is just like you know glossy kind of package deal. You, you add in the round table, which is is it's it's interesting, but they don't get into anything crazy with that either. You know, like we were, we were joking with Nash that he barely said two words and he was back. He wasn't on it last week for the first time, and he's now back this week. But he actually talked a lot more on this because his his consistent involvement and he said a few funny things and stuff like that. So you have those highlights, and and, and as I always say, it's it's not long or, or you know too overbearing either. You know, it goes kind of quick, but yeah, to your point, Ed, it's, it's exactly what it is. It's fun, fun to revisit, but it's something that we've been over a lot. We've lived through, watched, you know, you mentioned past DVDs, other documentaries, as we always say, ones that were better, you know, the non kind of glossy visual magazines, like ones that were really deep and, and get into it, you know, true documentaries, but at the end of the day, that's what these A and E uh, rivals kind of are. They they do their part, and it's it's fun, and, and it's, uh, it's especially cool just because it triggers. Like I'm talking about during this review, that's why I was kind of trying to throw some personal memories out there because it does bring me back to some of the highlights of being a wrestling fan, you know, growing up. Absolutely. So, dude, I don't want to alarm you, the Jay, but there's a motorcycle gang of dudes dressed up. Like I, I was going to mention showed up outside. So just be quiet because I'm prepared keep this week. Eye. All right. Keep an eye on these guys because I'm going to send us to commercial. So, right, guys, we'll be back right oh, Thursday. I got Fuck, him. Here we go. Johnny's Guy, guys, Thursday Night Prime's coming up I'm after this. Uh, Miami Connection Chuck 1987. Norris. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. What's real, everybody? Once again, it's your boy, The J, with the What's Real podcast here today to talk about Churchill Pictures and ChurchillPictures.com. Churchill Pictures is a production company literally born in Churchill, Pennsylvania, right outside of Pittsburgh, where friends since childhood, Damiano Fusca and myself grew up. In 2007, we collaborated on a dream project, a feature length film. With very little resources and an even smaller amount of money, we set out to accomplish our ultimate goal. Pulling together a combined network, we were able to pull off the entire filming of our co-written feature film debut, Deference, winner of the Silver Ace Award at the Las Vegas Film Festival. Deference is now available in hard copy format at churchillpictures.com and is currently streaming on vimeo.com, Amazon Prime, or check it out for free on YouTube. Subscribe to the Churchill Pictures YouTube channel today. Also available is the intense second feature film from Churchill Pictures, The Unsung. The Unsung is now available in hard copy format at walmart.com and is currently streaming on vimeo.com and Amazon Prime. Stay tuned for the next big CP project, an action comedy set in the 1980s about a struggling professional wrestling company. Check us out today at churchillpictures.com for more information and CP's entire library of videos, projects, and more. At Churchill Pictures, we create worlds. 
it's time for Thursday Night of Prime. And we're back, and we handled that pretty easily this week, the Jay. That wasn't too bad. There was like at least I took 40. Out two, two ninjas, man. They took off on the, you. They took off on the bike, so I have a funny feeling we're going to see them again, but not tonight. That's for damn sure. But anyway, yeah, I, was, I was heading down to the bunker with our old general Nakchoris, and I accidentally called out the actual Chuck Norris. So you know him; he just will appear. So him and Knox were getting at it. So I broke that up too. And never a dull moment at what's real. Oh, that was boring. Because Chuck Norris is boring. So he didn't have much to say. He just came doing this fucking death touch thing that he does. I was like, all right, the J, I'll go back to Maniscota. And just walked away slowly as like fucking uh, harmonica played. But anyway, it is time for Thursday Night Prime this week. We are going back to 1987 with YK Kim's Miami Connection. In a world where ninja dreams of being a rock star, where ninjas dream of being rock stars and rock stars dream of being ninjas, a martial arts rock band goes up against a band of motorcycle ninjas who have tightened their grip on Florida's narcotics trade. Just in case you needed the word ninjas to be in the synopsis a few more times. Eight times. Um, yeah, it's ridiculous. But it makes sense in the grand scheme of things because Miami Connection is a fucking weird movie. And by that, I mean it's a lot of fun. It's really inept. There is money behind this. The The production values are surprising. The fight scenes are surprisingly bad. Um, but dude, this works on a bunch of different levels that it probably shouldn't. But my God, is this fucking movie goofy as shit. The music is all goofy. The fight oh scenes are generally the goofy. Dude, the, the gang of villains is one of the goofiest fucking things I've ever seen. Where the main dude is just, he kind of reminds me of the white fucking uh, leather outfitted dude in Michael Jackson's Thriller, but with a beard. <laughs> like, it's yeah. very weird. But the movie is a fucking riot. Even down, like, dude, the songs are so bad in this that, like, you will be singing them. Yeah. Like, it's that I was going to have Cam play the one. Yep. Thank God. Uh, but, like, dude, this one... And now, okay, so going into this, I'd seen this a few times. I remember a few years ago, uh, the guys over at the Alamo Draft House actually discovered this and would screen it at the Draft House and would eventually put it out on their DVD Blu-ray label. Now, this one eluded you. And I remember telling you for years, like, dude, you got to see Miami Connection. So you finally picked up a disc after they re-released it. And this is your first time watching this. So I'm dying to know, dude. What was your initial impressions of Miami Connection? Well, we always got to do our shout outs on the show, you know, especially our friends and Art Edinger. And oh, yeah. he had posted, you know, he'll, he's a huge film nut, bigger, bigger than even Ed and I in a lot of ways, because he'll try to watch like fucking 500 films a year. <laughs> that dude, God bless him. He's the man. And he posted, you know, a thing about Miami Connection. And I had remembered you, like you said, mentioning it to me. So that got this all going again. So I looked into um, Amazon because I'm like, I'll just add it to the collection. I'll blind buy it. Hey, Ed said it. Art put it up. That's just how, how much of a movie nut I am. And I and I trust you because you're like, this is just so up your alley of the J. And then, of course, just looking into it, you know, watching the trailer, the, the box art, everything else that comes with it. I'm like, oh, I'm definitely interested. Screw it. I'll, I'll buy it. So I picked it up on, on Amazon. And then we reignited the uh, Thursday Night Prime segment because we go on hiatus every once in a while. And finally, you're like, it's your week, the J. We're going to do it. And and yes, those listening, I hadn't watched it previous 
to this viewing for Thursday Night Prime. So to your initial answer, hey, Ed, and, and I'm sure that's probably what you saw in where it's within my world. It reminded me of the stuff that we do. It's it's all heart. It's all big ideas and just goofs involved and everything that comes with it. And then you place it in the 80s. And I told you it was like a precursor to our independent film company, Churchill Pictures. And, and as you know, we did our first ever student film as kids ring heat that we, we should do for Thursday Night Prime talking out loud one day just for shits <laughs> and grins because it was an homage to B-level B action movies, to Thursday Night Prime, of course. So that's, of course, why this was in my wheelhouse and what this reminded me of. And I could see people shitting on it. I could see people understand not understanding it. But you know your boy, the J. I got it right away. Uh, I was super curious. You know, you mentioned the budget and there was some money behind it. Per IMDb, the estimated box office, or that's that's the box office uh, budget was. I think I think that's the budget was a million dollars. Does that sound right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I mean, this movie was made for a million dollars, whereas that's the big difference. Even with my reference to our own company, Churchill Pictures, I think our biggest budget we ever had was about twenty five thousand dollars. So uh, there you go. But that's that's my initial take. Was you know I I see the heart and and I just love other people that love film. You know, this is a passion of mine, you know, and I know it's a passion of yours. We've watched movies since we were kids. We're just huge film nerds. And that's, that's my first take on this is that the, the guys behind this were just huge film fans. They had this crazy idea and everything's there, man. And, and it is, it's, it's kind of a so bad. It's good experience, of course, but we, we always got to shout out to Herschel Gordon Lewis, man. It's, it's entertaining from, from the credits to the end. So every once in a while, whenever we do this, I head over to the Letterboxd app and read a couple of reviews that I think are poignant here. And I've read this guy's reviews on the show before. This is Patrick Willems again, and he kind of reiterates what you're saying, the Jay. A bad movie with so much effort and sincerity that it turns into a legit good movie. So, like, I agree with that. That's exactly. And, dude, this, this one's fucking great. Quote, singing. So this is meant to be sing. Sung, I should say. Bikers by day, ninjas by night, steal all of your cocaine along with your life. Now into the review portion here. This is from Josh Lewis on uh, Letterboxd. Sort of like watching a couch guy obsessed with ninjas, biker gangs, streets of fire, and Bruce Lee movies wake up from a dream at 3 a.m. and badly try to recall the episode of Miami Vice that was on TV while he passed out. The kind of movie where the sheer passion and energy on display overrides any blatant limitations or incompetency, making it the less grimy lo-fi, more upbeat pop cousin to something like Deadbeat at Dawn. Love me some 80s low-budget ultraviolence by orphan taekwondo rock stars who are seemingly perpetual in a perpetual state of just exiting the shower shirtless checking the mail in the name of friendship, family, honesty, loyalty, and world peace. Also, despite maybe questionable, <laughs> also despite the maybe questionable everything else, the music is genuinely great, immaculate vibes. So it, that that's a really great breakdown of what this is. It's it's kind of an anomaly because it it like you watch it and you're like, oh, this fucking shit, and it wins you over with just the sheer like. These dudes, like everybody involved, really wants to make this shit. Like they're all into it. There's no that's exactly what dude I see. taking time off. Like it's dude, and I gotta bring this up because it's maybe the funniest thing of all time. When the dude gets the letter in the mail about his dad, 
Oh my god! What and they try for the drama, dude. It's like they're like, "What? What is it?" He's like, "It's a letter." That's my day. It's a letter about and from my father. Like, <laughs> dude. It's yeah, and, so- they, and Kim, Kim, Kim's like, "I didn't know you had a father. I thought we were all orphans." Yeah, and he's like, "I didn't know either until recently when I read this letter." <laughs> And the dad, my God, my God, the dad at the end. Holy shit. It's oh, that like, scene. Like, it's really weird that some dude tried to make like an ultra positive fucking do gooder movie about rock and roll. Well, I mean, rock and roll is very you're, we're using a broad spectrum here. 80s <laughs> rock. Yeah, I guess that's what it is. Of like, sorts synthesizers and a bunch of like fucking funny fucking songs by your your new favorite band dragon sound dude i do want a dragon sound shirt i dude there somebody was putting those out years ago i do remember that and i'm very oh, angry sure it'd be easy I, to get custom fucking dragon sound, which is the most 80s ninja i love karate fucking band name of all time um but like, dude, this movie—it's so weird because, like, even if somebody's listening to us talk about this, they're like, "This this sounds like shit." But like, it's so fucking sincere, and everybody cares so much that like all the bullshit is literally passable. It's really weird. Yep. Uh, two things I wanted to mention here, hey, you know, was the because I, I I'm sure I think you you watched it differently than I did. I actually have the the Blu-ray that I mentioned I bought from Amazon. Um, and I have it here on me so I could reference some things. But the, one of the cool things about this was YK Kim opens it up. He opens up the, the like, as soon as you start it, you know, he's, okay. he's there talking. Yep. And, and like probably the last few years, you know, he's an older gentleman at this point. And he has a, an awesome little opening interlude just to open up the movie and explain it. And he just, you know, he basically says what we say over and over again. You know, I'm paraphrasing, of course, it's not in front of me as dialogue. But he basically says, you know, if you're expecting – some crazy thing, you know, as we always say, like the Godfather, th- this isn't it. But if you like ninjas and karate and like 80s rock music, motorcycles, boobs, of course, uh, TNP trope, you got to have some some nice breasts some in the films. And the bikers have uh, some titties out there. And uh, you know what else I like, too, was the the, the gore. You know, the, the yeah. violence is, is there, which, you know on the podcast, I gotta say for the review, just to back myself up, like not that I'm a violence hound, but in the movie aspect and just, uh, I you know, am. It, I love right. violence and gore. Yeah. Well, dude, we, that's how we survived Thursday night prime too. I just killed two men. So what am I talking it's about? True. Yeah. But uh, the other two things like on a personal level, uh, I'm watching it. Hey Ed and his group, the main dude, Vincent Hirsch, John, I called Michael Phelps. Yeah. In my head the whole movie. <laughs> and Phelps. the other dude, I think it was Joseph Diamond, the main singer, was Rick Rude. Yes. Yep. He had the rude mustache. Like I was like, oh, Rick Rude and fucking Phelps, you know, with Kim being the, the Bruce Lee wannabe. And we always respect the shout outs to people that love Bruce Lee because that's obvious here. Dude, that just reminds me of this. A buddy of mine on Twitter the other day was talking about this. He's like, man, even though I grew up in the 80s, I severely underestimated how many guys just looked like Kenny Loggins. And I was like, yeah, "Yeah, I always assumed that was kind of like the male version of like how girls used to dress up as like Madonna in the 80s. It's like, but most dudes are like, I just got a mullet and a mustache, brother, loggins it up, you know, like that's just what they were doing. But yeah, it's kind of like that in this too. Like a lot of the same, like 
the dude probably wanted the Loggins hair but couldn't grow it, so he just grew the mustache and looks like a fucking great value Rick Rude. And the dude, the other dude looks like Phelps. It's fucking weird. You're absolutely yeah, it's hilarious. Like if, if they just got him because he had abs, he had a six pack in this, and he sort of knows karate. Yeah, sorta is definitely in the the key word there. But but yeah, I mean, dude, the the whole crux to the final act and and everything that happens there, and of course, uh, Phelps is as we call him. His lo- he's the one in the love uh, interest situation <laughs> with Gotta Jane and. Her her brother's the main bad dude that you're talking about. That fucking goof. That's what basically really sets everything off. Like, yeah, and his death's hilarious. He gets dropped, and that's great. And that that like, again, that leads into a really cool climax. Of course, the whole you know them fighting the ninjas at the end, and some some really good gore. I mean, John the Phelps dude takes a, a sword to the face and just takes it. So they're they're both all bloody at the end, and you know shirtless and all that. Like, it's it's just ridiculous, dude. You you called it. It's so up my alley i'm somebody that gets it i respect it especially again being a precursor of shit like this in the 80s but god bless him in the 80s getting a million dollars if that's the case because dude it was that YK is the big kim, difference it was all yk kim that was all his money he put everything yeah. he had into this fucking movie so it's like yeah god bless him you know there's very few movies out there that are quite like miami connection it's weird like a lot of times we do kind of talk about like these random throwaway action movies and stuff from a bygone era here on Thursday Night Prime. And Miami Connection's really not one of them. Like it does have a charm. And even though there is a lot of ineptitude in the making of it, it's like, it, it, there's no reason why we should even be talking about this movie to this day, but we are. Um, I think a lot of things, you know, like a lot of the, the reason I think why we created this is because we genuinely have an affinity for stuff like this. And I think that a lot of people would kind of appreciate some of the stuff that we would talk about on here. And Miami Connection's not really in the world of Thursday Night Prime at all. It was never on HBO. Um, it's just something that fits that mold so well. And it's such a unique oh, example of what this stuff is. Like a lot of these movies are just made for money and just cheap exploitation to go straight to video. And Miami Connection is not that. This is a legitimate labor of love. And even though it is inept, you see that effort and everything on display and it makes the whole affair like way more charming than it really should be. It's something pretty special, honestly. Let me so throw some uh, trivia facts that they do on IMDb about this. It helps tell the story of this movie. So it's pretty much like you said, I guess YK Kim was you know a, a legit martial artist. So that's how he was kind of wealthy, actually. He owned a chain of Taekwondo studios. Yep. So one of the one of the first tidbits is most of the cast, of course, were students of yep. YK Kim. Yep. All the bikers were real bikers who were paid in beer. A hundred of the bikers showed up for the film's premiere. That's awesome. YK Kim was so popular in Orlando, Florida, that the local government and law enforcement allowed him to film anywhere in the city without permits. So I could tell you that helps a lot. Big time. Uh, here's here's the big one. Opened in eight theaters in Orlando, YK Kim spent millions of his own money to produce, promote, and distribute the film himself. There you so go. We talk about a labor of love, and and again, it's it's similar to to me. I'm not YK Kim, but I've put my heart and soul and a lot of money in my films, but but not millions. So you know, good for him with that. And uh, you know, like like you said, this is the last thing I'll throw out with these facts I had, but this is just a really cool breakdown. It's something you had mentioned about the kind of resurgence of the film. So it kind of finalizes telling this story. 
So the film opened originally to poor box office, scathing reviews that had long been forgotten. As Hayed had stated, in June 2009, Zach Carlson, a programmer at the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema in Austin, Texas, happened upon a seller on eBay who was selling a 35mm print of it. Carlson had never heard of the film but bought it for $35, the 35mm for $35, bucks. Hayed. In April 2010, Carlson screened the film at the Drafthouse and it became wildly popular with cult film fans. More screenings took place to pack theaters. Drafthouse phoned YK Kim about distributing the film. But the film's failure was a painful experience for Kim. And I feel for you. I feel for you, YK. And he originally thought that the call was a cruel prank. Ah, breaks my heart, man. Eventually, Kim relented and saw that his film had become a popular midnight movie 25 years after its initial failure. And all I have to say, hey, Ed, I just hope I have that same experience. <laughs> yeah, you know, really. my stuff is is kind of just not, you know, it's in its own little corner. Not a, People have just haven't seen our stuff, you know, hopefully one day. But what an awesome story. What an awesome movie. Thank you for your recommendation. Thank you for Art Ettinger for putting that post up to put it in my wheelhouse again. And uh, I'm not thanking Amazon. Fuck them. All right. So hit us with a tagline for Miami Connection, the J. All right. So, yeah, this this one on IMDb is pretty goddamn funny. So it fits the uh, the mold of this movie com- completely. So the Miami Connection, survival, the ultimate test. <laughs> survival the not survive survival dude the ultimate test now check this one out i actually like this one a lot better greetings from the most dangerous jungle in the world the streets of miami that's awesome that cool. and, and like i said as i speak here on the what's real podcast i am holding in my hand the miami connection blu-ray it's actually the the pre-fermented it's draft house films it's the draft house deal they made to distribute it and special features include audio commentary with yk kim and joe diamond rick root himself uh with tracked audio commentary with mystery science theater 3000 comedians mike nelson kevin murphy and bull corbett dude i gotta watch that that's awesome that'll probably that be was good on here yeah live on the show introduction by grandmaster yk kim that's what i was talking about that i watched it was cool and uh friends for eternity the making of miami connection so some cool features on there. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, we'll we'll have Cam. You know, I'll, I'll have you try to track that down. Hopefully, you could find that. You could send that to Cam, and hopefully, you guys hearing us are hearing some of Dragon Sound exactly. on, on this week's episode of the What's Real Podcast. So as we what do, a fucking movie. As we do here on a five star scale, the J. What are you giving Miami Connection? Uh, YK Kim. Most people would give you a one or two. The J's giving you four stars, man, for the effort. Okay, I went with three and a half, but I really like this movie a lot. So uh, that is Miami Connection. Probably one of the better things that we've reviewed, uh, you know, on here uh, in the history of Thursday Night Prime. So just, just a gem, man. Like like I said, I can't say it enough. The story of something that was forgotten that just gets found in '09. Something made in the '80s that somebody finds it in '09. And and again, I, I hate to keep going back there, but it's a personal thing. That's why I say to a lot of a lot of my collaborators that you kind of get disappointed that you you know you're not getting bigger faster and people haven't seen your shit, but you never know. As long as you create and have that passion, you have the heart and your stuff, you never know what's going to happen. You create it, it's art, and it's out there for the world's consumption. At that point, it's up to the art on what happens and what a cool story. And if you guys are into physical media, you can pick up the Blu-ray right now on Amazon. I also did see this too. I watched my Blu-ray, but uh, it is streaming on Amazon Prime. 
free with ads. So you guys can check that out right now at no additional cost if you have Amazon Prime. Uh, otherwise, the DVD, or I'm sorry, the Blu-ray is available right now for purchase. So that's another week of Thursday Night Prime. We're going to take our last commercial break. And whenever we come back, we're going to wrap up the show. And the Jay is going to show us the wonderful waterfall of goofs. So stay tuned, everybody. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. What's the most action-packed segment weekly podcasting? Thursday Night Prime. What segment on weekly podcasting do the hosts literally put their lives on the line? Thursday Night Prime. Join us each week for the most action-packed weekly segment in podcasting where Hey Ed and the J look back at all kinds of weirdo B-action movies. It is Thursday Night Prime. Hey everybody, this is Herman James for the What's Real Podcast, and I'm here to just let you know to welcome you to Goofs or Geeks. And we're back, and it's that time once again. Yo, the J, what do we got this week on the goof front? Uh, we would be remiss not to describe this setting. Here is the sun sets. Hey, you know, this vista we walk to from the bunker and the What's Real Studios with the storks and the dolphins in the lagoon and everything we describe to the listeners. Because, of course, over here on Yonder, that's why we come, is the Waterfall of Goofs. Here we are in the Waterfall of Goofs, the What's Real Podcast, episode 126. This is going to be a different kind of take on on the What's Real Podcast Goose or Goose segment this week. Because I got kind of a bunch of different little tidbit goofs or goose pieces here. So we're going to kind of just run through them. Like I was joking with, hey, Ed, I'm going to be like the micro machine man that we grew up on in the 80s. But I'm not going to go that quick. So we're going to rewind like Cena used to do is whatever the hell his name was, prototype. So here we go. Hey, yeah with GRG. So I, I don't know if you saw this one. There was a track meet in Colombia where it turned not safe for work real quick. Uh, this happened last Thursday. An Italian decathlete, Alberto Nonino, his junk popped out in the middle of the race. I did see this. On, well, not, <laughs> I didn't see this, but I seen the story on it. Yeah, the one dude said he's hung like a cocktail weenie without like the outer f- fluff piece surface thing, you know? <laughs> okay like good description francois this Jesus. this story's wild hey ed and it involves one of the men we hate the most in the world but respect his ass and that is the one and only coach of the patriots bill belichick oh a former patriot crashed his car to avoid being cut it comes out because rich ornberger who used to play for the patriots uh he you know has since retired so he can tell the story and he said in a quote, I'm going to hit this car. It's better to pay the insurance than embarrass myself by being late for a Patriots team meeting. Yeah. I mean, I could definitely see that being the choice if money was not a factor. Yeah. The first two comments seems like one hell of a toxic culture. And isn't this kind of insurance fraud? <laughs> well, yeah, it definitely is. Let me just, you hit can't this make this up. Car. Hey, Ed Cleveland will play host to the National Massage Therapist Convention later this month. Because of course they are. It's like this is all <laughs> planned from fucking Deshaun Watson from the beginning. He's the main, he's the keynote speaker. <laughs> <laughs> it's, he's, it's the classic like, is this on? Can you it's hear like me? The, there's like two people in the audience and you immediately hear the. 
<laughs> that's that's perfect too because that's a simpsons reference and we got a simpsons reference in this rapid fire goose or goose on the one two six i'm sending you as i do live here on the show hey ed to your twata this next viral video this is our viral video of the week for the rush this one never gets old as a goof throwing at, out the first pitch at a i believe it's a red Sox game or maybe a minor league completely misses the catcher and hits the dude working the mic right in the dickhead <laughs> do you see this <laughs> and the best the best part's the dude's face he like cringes because he knows he took out the dude's junk dude that just reminds me of this too because you brought up the simpsons thing before you said this but i don't know if you saw this today i think i retweeted it but this is what it is so you could do this part this that's what it is the criterion yeah the, the man getting hit by football <laughs> Yeah, so a new t- title announcement from the Criterion Collection in 4K Ultra HD coming this November is Hans Molman Productions presents Man Getting Hit by Football. And we won't describe that because that's just a Simpsons reference. You either get it or you don't. That's not even an inside joke because the Simpsons has been around for as long as Hey Ed and I. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's uh, seriously, I'm not even kidding. If this was a real thing, I would buy the fuck out of it. So would not, I. not even kidding. Uh, this one was funny because, uh, uh, dude, I really love, you know, me with Robin Williams is involved in this, where a uh, story came out from the granddaughter of Whoopi Goldberg, where she said this hilarious story where Wh- Whoopi Goldberg once had a fart war on an elevator with Robin Williams and Billy Crystal. <laughs> <laughs> The three uh, legendary comedians were Dutch ovening each other on an elevator. But isn't that what comedians just do? Like, like, hey, there's three of us together on an elevator. We got to start farting. Yeah, we got to just fart all over each other. That's why we were put on this planet. To fart on each other. Just like Drake's dad, who, like, how goofy is this? I don't know if you heard this one. His dad's Drake's, goofy. Drake's dad, Dennis Graham, got, has gotten a massive tattoo to honor his son. But Drake isn't feeling it. He got a tattoo of his son on his on his fucking uh, shoulder blade, and uh, the tattoo artist calls him a bitch ass. <laughs> <laughs> that caught me off guard. Yeah. Why? This, like, this one you sent me, had I was crying, crying. Let's see. Let's check and see how many fucks Pete Rose has to give. And that's zero, folks. On a broadcast in the booth today, he was a guest broadcaster for the Phillies. And he's talking about cocks and shit because, well, he's Pete fucking Rose, man. Dude, but he, did you listen to the clip? Yeah, he basically just says like, yeah, back in the day, you know, I, I forget the name of the manager. He was telling us the pitcher was throwing the balls about cock high. No, he said and cockeyed. Cockeyed, and the and the, the the real announcer is all quiet, and then it's just like, oh, shallow hit to left field. Well, and he's, dude, like, he's like, you diverted that one pretty quick there, no, dude. He's like, he's like, hey, he said he used to throw the ball cockeyed, and I told him I was like, hey, he's out here throwing the ball cockeyed. And the manager came out and was like, no shit. I <laughs> yeah. oh, see so you got uh, hit hit the right field. He's like, oh, I hit the right field. It always interrupts me. Hey, at least the uh, Phillies were winning seven one at the time he said that. And I and I gotta bring this up because everything reverts back to wrestling. But if you remember Pete Rose and wrestling the Jay, all I gotta ask you is one question: 
How, how about how it? About it? <laughs> Philly, the city of losers. How about it? How about it? <laughs> and and next up, hey L, the next to last, another one I just direct messaged you. You gotta love 2022 and technology live here on the What's Real podcast, throwing shit at your ale. But this is our animal viral video, like we like to do, and it's entitled oh, Jaguars. Where to describe to our listeners, this jaguar just fucking monsters this alligator and just picks him up in his jaws in the water Holy and just carries shit. him up the riverbank. Yep. Uh, the description this jaguar demonstrated the. I'll, I'll do it like uh, I was going to say Bill Billings. Do, do the Richard Attenborough. Yeah, like the I, British I was guy. trying to say old Dick Attenborough. I said Bill Billingsley. Like, who the fuck's Bill Billingsley? <laughs> Bill Billingsley. <laughs> <laughs> this jaguar demonstrated the meaning of the term power, dragging this eight foot long, armor plated, 74 tooth chunk of contracting muscle out of the water. Jaguars are estimated to have the fifth strongest bite in the entire animal kingdom. <laughs> and we're ending this crazy shit. The Jay is on fumes, the witching hour with this one was going to be positive. Hey, Ed. So we did the rundown. We did the microman. Woohoo. The microman. Man, am I on fumes? Jeez. The so micro machine man. Positivity for your week. Hey, Ed. Kobe oh, Bryant's man. 10 rules. Our man, Kobe. Rest in power, Cobes. Get better every single day, peeps. Prove them wrong. Work on your weaknesses. Execute what you practiced. Learn from greatness. Learn from wins and losses. Practice mindfulness. Be ambitious. Believe in your team. Learn storytelling. Just like your boy, the J. And I got too many to go through, like our typical setup where I redo them all ahead. I'm just going to say to my brahaha from another mahaha, goofs are goofs. So that's right, guys. We're almost at the end of this week's show. If you want to know how to become an NBA player, just follow those rules, and I'm sure it will help you. Don't even worry about practicing a jump shot. Just listen to those 10 rules, and you'll be successful in life. Be good. So that is about it for us this week. If you guys have anything you'd like to send to us, specifically all you cowards out there, you can email us at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Again, for the cowards, whatsrealpod at gmail.com. If you're listening on iTunes, feel free to give us a five-star review. Helps out the algorithm, gets more eyes and ears on the program. And of course, you can listen each and every week on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and churchillpictures.com. But before we get out of here, hear the J revving it up. So the J, take it away. Revving it up like I'm winning a track meet with little big the J hanging out and then grabbing a goddamn alligator in my jaws and taking him out of the riverbanks. Hey, y'all. But as you could tell, on fumes and pumped. Love the world of the What's Real podcast. It was another great time. Love spending it with you, man. Love our world. Love the dub our question. Got to do the shout out. Shout out to the wizard behind the boards, our producer amongst producers. Thanks for what you do, Cam. That consistent 16K crystal clear sound each and every week. We love you. We appreciate it. Hey, Ed, you my brother. All I need to say, just leading the charge like General Maximus Aurelius himself with that Herculean bicep like I opened the show with. Stay safe. Stay healthy. You'll hear the Jay's ass next week. Absolutely. So, of course, shout out to our producer, Cam, for all the hard work he puts into the show. And, of course, as we know here on the show, nobody beats the Wiz. And he manages to do all that when he's not playing keyboards for Dragon Sound. So, it's pretty impressive. Uh, also, to you, the Jay, clang, clang, brother. Clang, another, clang. 
another successful defense of our podcasting tag team championships of the world. And you know what? If we ever lose these, let's just go buy some motor motorcycles and become ninjas, right? I mean, that makes I sense. D O double N hate you. All right, let's do that. So uh, that's about it for us this week. Don't forget to join us next week on episode 127 and beyond. So that's it for us this week. We'll see you here next week. So stay safe, stay healthy. We'll see you here next week on What's Real Podcast. What's real?